Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. In Act One, we have reading recommendations, we check in with the hosts, and we feature Avery Caswell in her novel Salvation, based on the true story of two sisters who are kidnapped by a traveling evangelist outside of Charlotte. In Act Two, we have our Charlotte Lit. Two minutes of tips, and the topic is poetry. And we continue that discussion about poetry with the 2022 Gilbert Chapel Distinguished Poet, Kenneth Shamley. Uh, and we have some poetry readings by our very own uh, Sarah Archer as well. In Act Three, we have a discussion about uh, writer procrastination using uh, Landis's uh, recent Wade Scripps blog post as a starting point. We hear from listeners on that topic as well. Uh, we feature Sheila Myers in that uh, act uh, with her novel, The Truth of Who You Are, a story inspired by actual events and the people who once lived in the Smoky Mountains before it became a national park. And in Act 4, we feature Benjamin Gilmer in his book, The Other Dr. Gilmer, Two Men, A Murder, and An Unlikely Fight for Justice, a true crime book But what Dr. Benjamin Gilmer found out when he went to work at a rural clinic that the previous doctor at the clinic who shared his last name. And then we wrap things up uh, with our takeaways, tell you about what's coming in the next episode. And uh, hey, we just have a great time in this episode. So hope you enjoy what we've got in store for you. On behalf of uh, Hannah LaRue and uh, Sarah Archer, I'm Landis Way. We are grateful for your presence uh, at uh, this episode. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. Hey listeners, welcome and uh, welcome Hannah and Sarah. Thank you, hey guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's up, host? What's up, Hannah? Not much. I feel like noth- none of my updates change too much right now since we're recording so close <laughs> together. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to hang in there day by day. I was just saying um, I have an induction date now, so that's something I can kind of look forward to ending this you know, summer pregnancy process, so that's really good. Um, doing a lot of reading, I feel like, to try to get as many interviews in as possible before I head out and just kind of finishing up my workload right now, which has been, it's made August very um, hectic, but I like that. <laughs> and I'm going to look at it as like a party, right? So that party is kind of coming to a close now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and we're, you know, this releases on September 13th, even though we're recording it mm-hmm. early. So. That won't be very far from your induction date, right? No, maybe I'm I'll already be <laughs> done. <laughs> it's sort of a weird thing yeah. where you like don't want to rush time, but at the same time, you know, you do. <laughs> so it's like you're ready. <laughs> yeah, you're just like ah, eight and a half months is good. I'm good. I think yeah. now I understand what this is like. <laughs> so well, ba- bank up some bank up some reservoir sleep so uh, that uh, yeah, because you know, you'll need I'm trying. <laughs> Yeah. what about you guys so what's up yeah what's up sarah um same here not too much because we haven't 
it's been has been that long since we recorded our last mm-hmm. episode. Um, I did find out last week the studio approved the the last draft of this feature that I'm working on. They were pretty happy Great. with it, which is good. So we're moving on to the the next round of notes. I've actually got a meeting with them later this afternoon to go over those. Um, so things are chugging along there, and I'm back into the the writing trenches on that. Um, and for those for those who haven't maybe not know this, but this is a, a rom-com script mm-hmm. kind of thing? Yeah, it's an ensemble rom-com, um, kind of like Love Actually, where it's like multiple storylines that are all in the same universe, but they kind of intersect with each other at different points. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be like a fun TV slash streaming rom-com, um, which has been a nice a nice project to work on. And um, what else? My birthday is... And before you go anywhere else, I'm just curious, yeah. do, you, do you know when they're going to produce this? I don't know yet. Um, we had talked about doing it in the fall, but I feel like that would be very soon. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm not quite sure what the timeline is, but I might find out more later today um, when we talk. So hopefully I'll have... Are you going to get to go be on the set when they do any of the recording? I, yeah. I have no idea. That'd I don't even cool. know where they would shoot it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it would be fun to at least like show up for a little bit. But typically <laughs> the writer is not that involved in that part of the process. So if anything, you're just kind of like in the way. <laughs> but, Come on, you need to get a cameo like, in there or something. Yeah, yeah I'll just like yeah. run through really quickly in the background. <laughs> Wave at the camera. Yeah. So what else? What's, what else is going on? Uh, my birthday is in about a week. Um, Woohoo! So that's... That's fun, even though I don't really a have... A week from September 13th or a week from a when week we're from, recording? Yeah, so when we, when we release this, it will already have happened, but it's okay. next week as of recording this. Um, I don't really have much planned, though. I'm just going to eat cake. Landis, <laughs> that's, that's my do, exciting plan. Landis, do you have a birthday sound on the sound maker? Because uh, <laughs> your birthday is coming up, too. So you know, I've got all uh, these birthdays What do I up. have on here? That I, maybe I can do uh, just... Uh, I can do this right here, I guess. Uh, uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, happy birthday! And, and speaking of that, I've got a birthday coming up too, and I'll, I'll be the same age as Sarah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Pretty close. I'll be twice there, <laughs> twice Sarah's age probably. Uh, I'll be 65 uh, in on September the 10th, and uh, my son and daughter have, uh, no, my son and my wife have put together a trip. Um, Actually, I'll be on the plane coming back from there when this releases on the 13th. We're going out to Pebble Beach to play golf. I've never done it. Uh, it's going to be fun. We're going to play three or four days and going to see that part of the country, uh, which is south of San Francisco, north of L.A. So that'll be big-time fun and looking forward to that. And uh, let's see, when I get back, I've got a, another retirement community on the Deadly Declaration Retirement Community Tour. I'm killing it. <laughs> I'm be down at Sun, on September 19th down at Sun City in Fort Mill, and we'll be talking uh, about the history that inspired uh, Deadly Declarations. And um, when I'm recording this, just last night I was at Final Drought, which uh, the uh, Charlotte Mercury Library Foundation does a great job with these final uh, drought. I guess I should call it Final Draft. It's spelled drought, but I think it's Final Draft. That's the German whatever. But uh, <laughs> It's uh, it, they're great. They have authors come out, um, speak in a setting at uh, town brewing where people drink beer and eat food and talk about books. Uh, it's a pretty good deal, you know, pretty fun. And we had a good time doing that. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, like y'all, I've been we've been cramming all these episodes together in August, so that's that's been busy, but uh, fun and exciting to be able to feature all these different uh, authors um, that we're having on the show and continuing to learn about the process of writing so hey we've got also in our what's up category we, maybe we should call this what's up community but uh we've got 
a little announcement here um, from Dave Collins, who is the uh, president of the Charlotte Writers Club this year. So let's hear what he has to say. This is Dave Collins, president of the Charlotte Writers Club, with an invitation to Charlotte area writers, even to avid readers who want to know more about what happens as the book comes together. Members of the CWC meet on the third Tuesday of each month to hear a craft talk by an accomplished writer. Meetings are held at the Tyvola Senior Center, 2225 Tyvola Road, and begin at 6.30 p.m. Our first speaker this year, September 20th, marked the date, is Kelly Mustian, whose debut novel, The Girls in the Stilt House, climbed onto the USA Today bestseller list, a remarkable feat for a first book. You get where you were going with the writing project, Kelly says, one word, one line at a time. Join us as Kelly talks about the importance of well-crafted sentences, where you can set a cadence that enhances your style, create an atmospheric sense of place, build suspense through wordplay, and develop memorable characters using carefully crafted dialogue. For more information, visit our website, charlottewritersclub.org. Yeah, and I'd like to uh, do a little shout-out by way of just, I think, Sarah, you and I uh, <clears throat> actually met at the uh, Charlotte Writers Club. I think that's yeah. where we first met yeah. each other, and uh, look where we are now. We're podcasting here. So, <laughs> it's a great know. place to meet writers, make connections, <laughs> meet readers. It, it really is a good organization. I think it's officially 100 years old this year, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, they have a lot to offer, so definitely for anyone local, they're a good thing to check out. Yeah, and you don't have to, uh, look, be it's all variety of writers i mean I, I joined about five or six years ago didn't know what i was doing in the writing world i'm still trying to figure out what i'm doing a little bit but uh you know people learn together and you know you can come to meetings and just listen also to the speakers uh and uh meet and connect as uh, sarah said and uh learn from from each other it's uh and you know it's 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 very expensive. I think it's about thirty five bucks a year. You know, so it's and, and you can come you can come for free to the first couple. So come out if you had never been. Come out on September twentieth uh, and listen to the speaker that uh, Dave Collins uh, mentioned there in that spot. Because hey, you know, to write a first book and hit the USA Today bestseller list, that's pretty good. She's probably got some helpful information to share. And Hannah, you you were um, you did a little gig with us there one time with the Charlotte Writers Club. Right? Yeah, I think that was actually the first time I sort of met you, Sarah. You were there, I think. Um, the Zoom yeah, panel. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, <laughs> Zoom, right. The publicity yeah. panel. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a, an event too that we ended up having to postpone for like a year, I feel like, because the original one right. was right when COVID happened. And so mm -hmm. it was kind of, we ended up doing it via Zoom. But it was a lot of fun. That was great. A, an awesome group of writers. Yeah, and to make it 100 years in anything, I yeah. mean, that's an accomplishment. So. That's a good, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to be doing a lot of events this year and uh, having some, some uh, good speakers. And so, uh, and they've got uh, also, if you're starting out as a writer and you want to be part of a critique group, they help you get connected in that way too. And, and Sarah's a part of about, what, 18 <laughs> uh, groups? Yeah, about, yeah, about 18 to 20 groups, <laughs> two of them actually through the Charlotte Writers Club. <laughs> Um, right. So You're, yeah, they, you you, coll <laughs> you collect writing groups like some people collect bottle caps exactly. or stamps, right? <laughs> it's a good collecting yeah. item, collector's <laughs> item. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's let's move on to um, what uh, we're reading, and we'll have our uh, community collaborators uh, chime in too on what they're reading. But uh, we'll have to confess we're cheating a little bit, folks. We've recorded <laughs> a couple episodes here, so we're going to be telling you 
the things that we think we're going to like to read and the things we've started reading and the things that we hope to read, right? So, uh, yeah. Hannah, you, you're our, you always lead us off, so lead us off. Yeah, good good intro because that's definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's this is more of like what I'm excited to read. <laughs> um, I just ordered a book a couple weeks ago that I'm excited about called When We Were Bright and Beautiful by Jillian Madoff. And it's kind of like, it sounds like a Gone Girl type of thing. Like I said last episode, I love thrillers. Um, this one's kind of takes place on a college campus, involves like a sexual assault case, um, so like a family drama, so sort of sort of like a mixture of different things. Um, so I'm excited to read that. I'm also sort of rereading the Harry Potter series right now. I don't know if it's mm. like expecting a young child. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> I need the magic in my life a little bit. But yeah. so I've been redoing rereading some of those um, just kind of here and there when I have time. And then, of course, um, been reading a lot of stuff for the podcast which is again one of my favorite parts of doing this so that's been a lot of fun um what about you guys what are you excited to read <laughs> before we jump into that i'll just say that you know hogwarts is a place that my wife janet goes when she just wants to get away oh. and go, go into that make-believe it's land. so nice yeah. yeah i mean especially like for me at the end of the day right i feel like i'm so tired because i'm just massive so like when i sit down i'm like oh this is kind of nice i feel like i'm <laughs> flying on a broom playing quidditch <laughs> instead of sitting here feeling bad <laughs> so well, that's a good that might be a good setup because we got a poem from sarah today yeah. that uh, involves witches yeah that's perfect true. perfect lead into that yeah, yeah. yeah not, not quite as fun as harry potter but <laughs> and i yeah, think that book you mentioned is one of Libra's um, uh, advanced arcs this month okay. uh, when we were bright and beautiful. So. Yeah, I do the book of the like month uh, club yeah. thing and it's actually really great okay. just for, you know, getting to, you get some advanced copies like before they're even out yet <laughs> and I love that. Good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it reminds me of the National Lampoon uh, movie Christmas Vacation. Uh, the, the Jelly of the, of the Month, month Club. club. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the gift. Yeah. It's the gift. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Pretty accurate. <laughs> All through the year. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Sarah, what uh, what's on your list? So I've been reading um, All the Colors We Will See by Patrice Gopo, who is a wonderful local writer. Um, she's been on the podcast before. This is a book of essays that she did, a collection of essays, and um, it it delves a lot into her sort of cultural and family background. Her parents are Jamaican, Jamaican immigrants. She grew up in Alaska. She's lived all over the place, including um, places like South Africa. She currently lives in North Carolina. So she has a lot of different influences in her life and her travels and her, her family background. Um, so she writes a lot about like heritage and geography and that sort of thing and also weaves in themes of religion and all sorts of stuff. Um, and she, she's got a really beautiful writing style, really lovely descriptions. So I'm I'm completely enjoying this collection right now. Um, it's nice because it's it's essays, so each one kind of stands alone, and you can pick it up, you know, and read one at a time. But they also flow together and form like a bigger picture, which is which is always interesting to see. Um, so I'm really enjoying her writing, and I actually am going to have the opportunity to um, speak with her soon on September 14th, which we're recording this in August, <laughs> but I think it's going to come out September 13th. So if you listen to this the day it comes out, you still have time. <laughs> you can still get tickets, even though it's it's. Free, so you don't have to pay. But um, through the uh, through Charlotte Lit, I'm going to be doing an event with Patrice on the 14th. We're 
we're going to talk about um, writing in different forms and different media. She has this book of essays. She also has a children's book that's out. Um, I have done fiction in different genres and screenwriting and poetry. So we're going to talk about like the the pros and cons and how you how you do that, how you kind of write in different forms and um, how that's interesting. So I think it'll be a great event. We'll have a lot to talk about. Um, she's a wonderful writer. So I'm really looking forward to speaking with her. And yeah. Yeah. Charlotte Lit, another organization locally that uh, we partner with uh, a lot of great uh, classes, but also these kind of events as well. And uh, so go to their website. Uh, what I think it's charlottelit.org. I think I'm, so. I, I think it's charlottelit.org. Yeah, well, but if you just Google Charlotte, use your Google kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. it'll come <laughs> up. Yeah. And then just you know go go listen to it. and you you know Patrice. Uh, I interviewed Patrice on the uh, podcast uh, before we were beyond three hundred. You can search for her on the guest page of the podcast website and uh, listen to that too if you like. So okay, so when I'm reading, I'm about uh, let's see a third of the way through two of these books and uh, read the. The inciting incident of the other. So, uh, first of all, Death in the Sunshine, Steph Broadrib. It's a mystery set in a Florida retirement community involving four former uh, people that worked in uh, law enforcement. So, kind of interesting. The author is from uh, Great Britain, um, but she's gotten a lot of uh, play for her writing and uh, a lot of downloads and a lot of reviews. And uh, it's it's interesting. It's, uh, you know, like any murder mystery there's a body in the first chapter this one happens to be in in the uh in the retirement community swimming pool so (laughs) (laughs) and the police the police don't want these old retirees helping uh you know get involved even though they think they have the skill set and do because of their former lives and so that's kind of interesting and then uh shades of fear shout out to local author susan uh, mills wilson she um she's been on the podcast too but she's got a book out uh that covers has Charlotte on it. Uh, it's the Charlotte Police Department. She's got one of her protagonists, and it looks like the, the duo is going to be really interesting, a young uh, uh, detective and uh, older detective, uh, well, more experienced detective. They're going to team up, male, female. So who knows? Sparks may fly there. We'll see, but kind of a good opening. And then um, this title, I'm, this is not uh, porn, folks, but the title <laughs> is Foreplay. Uh, <laughs> By, by Linda Shaheen, and, and it's a very it's a very clever, not only title, but book cover, because on the book cover, there is someone holding two golf balls on a golf tee, putting it into a ground. Um, that looks a, a little pornographic as well, but it's it's actually, you know, the movie Caddyshack, you remember yeah. the movie Caddyshack? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is kind of the modern version of Caddyshack, set in a California ritzy upscale uh golf community uh country club and uh there's a female golfer there who's won the club championship for the women the last nine years if if she wins the 10th time she's going to go to this big tournament but um in comes another woman who's a pretty good golfer and uh they're going to square off and i'm sure the country club's going to take sides (laughs) you know already it's just sort of high antics it's written almost like you can visualize somebody's writing this to very easily uh, turn it into a screenplay, mm-hmm, you know, right. because it has all these little incidents taking place, kind of like Caddyshack. So it's fun. It's it's light. You know, it's you're not. It's the kind of book that I can read at the same time I'm reading another book, right? Yeah, <laughs> perfect for right now. <laughs> Y'all done this yeah. kind of thing, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, a couple of, couple of mis- one mystery, one uh, thriller, and one kind of off the wall uh, thing that involves uh, sports too. So uh, let's hear what um, uh, our collaborator uh, 
Alyssa Pressler at That's Novel Books is recommending this week. Hello, everyone. This is Alyssa with That's Novel Books calling back in to give you all a couple of book recommendations based on some things that I've recently read and then one book um, that is one of my all-time favorite books. Uh, so I'll start with The Trouble Hating You by Sajni Patel. Uh, this was a kind of rom-com style romance. I thought it was fine, if we're being honest. I think it's a nice, fluffy, quick read. A perfect palate cleanser if you're just kind of feeling like you're in a book slump. The writing didn't wow me. The story was fine and it was cute. Um, so overall, I would recommend it depending on what spot you're kind of in and what, what type of book you're looking for. Uh, now for an old favorite, I'm going to recommend Atonement to you all. That's by Ian McEwan. It is one of my all-time favorite books. I think it is truly one of the most perfect books written. It's beautiful. It's um, heart-wrenching. It's historical fiction, which happens to be one of my favorite genres to read in. So those are my two book recommendations this week. Feel free to follow us along or shop with us at That's Novel Books. We are located in Camp North End. I like that uh, palette cleanser yeah <laughs> that's what you need it was a palate cleanser yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little yeah. bit of an escape yeah atonement's good. good too i i really i haven't read it i read it a long time ago but the movie is great as well yeah, yeah. i need to both read and watch that one i love james sure. a little james mcavoy <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah all right well let's hear what uh, mark west with uh story charlotte blog has got for us this week Hello, this is Mark West with the Story Charlotte blog. Today I'm recommending the latest novel by Joy Calloway. Joy Calloway is a Charlotte writer who's known for her historical novels about strong women from America's past. Joy's latest historical novel, The Grand Design, just came out this summer. Much of the story takes place in the Greenbrier, the famous resort in West Virginia. The central character has much in common with Dorothy Draper, the pioneering interior designer who renovated the Greenbrier after it was used as a makeshift hospital during World War II. In researching this novel, Joy did a tremendous job of delving into the history of the Greenbrier, but also delving into the life of Dorothy Draper. It's a novel, but it's based on real history real people, and real places. If you're interested in reading more books by Joy Calloway, I also recommend her two previous historical novels. The first one is called The Fifth Avenue Artist Society. And this book deals with a young woman in New York City in the late 19th century who is just determined to become a famous writer. Much of the story deals with what sometimes are called salons, or writer salons, or artist salons, uh, which were popular in New York, in Paris, and elsewhere during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Her second book, which came out in 2017, is called Secret Sisters, and it deals with the founding of the very first, what, what are today called sororities on college campuses. In the late 19th century, very few women went to college, um, but a small group of women in the 1880s decided that they wanted to start what they called a woman's fraternity, uh, which 
today we would call sorority. And in this novel, which is based on actual history, uh, Joy really delves into what was involved in establishing what became the first uh, sorority on college campuses. So if you're interested in the lives of American women and women who made a difference in their lives, I highly recommend all three of Joy Calloway's historical novels. But I especially recommend her latest book, The Grand Design. Yeah, Joy is a uh, talented uh, local author, uh, writes historical fiction. We had her on the podcast. Uh, when I interviewed her before, uh, we talked about Secret Sisters, which is a fascinating book that, uh, as Mark mentioned, about uh, women um, forming the earliest or uh, maybe the first uh, sororities um, on the campuses then. And uh, you can check that out. Uh, just go to the guest uh, page of Schroeder's podcast, click on that. <clears throat> or if you want to, scroll back through your app. But hey, Take a lot of scrolling since we got over 300 episodes <laughs> there. But, uh, yeah, Joy, Joy's uh, uh, a great uh, great author. So um, let's see here. We've got uh, one more thing I want to do before we um, jump to our first author feature here in Act 1. And uh, we had put out sort of a call to action in the previous episode uh, telling uh, you listeners if you're a writer and you've just written a book or you want to try to work on your – you know, 30-second elevator pitch, and it's exciting, and uh, it kind of pulls us in. Uh, we, we might play it on the podcast, and, uh, hey, somebody was out there listening. So uh, we're going to – this is uh, Brian Mitchell. He uh, sent this in, and uh, so let's hear his pitch uh, as part of our uh, reading recommendations. Hello, this is Brian Mitchell. I didn't want to procrastinate doing this, so I'm jumping right in. Daniel Strong is a troubled young man who falls into Dante's Inferno. A demon tells him that he must go to Satan to bargain for his freedom. Daniel becomes more and more hopeless with each step he takes toward the bottom of hell. Will he succumb to the lies pulling him down, or will he find there's another way? Infernal Fall debuts on October 25th. Embark on this harrowing tale of light versus darkness and discover if there truly is only one way out of hell. Well done, Brian. I like how he had that little procrastination time there. He's been listening. (laughs) Yeah, he he knew this episode was coming up. We're going to be talking about procrastination. He jumped right in. But, uh, yeah, that's what we're talking about. So, listeners, um, you know, do your best to go to our SpeakPipe page. You can find it on the on the podcast uh, under our con- – I think it's our contact tab. We've got uh, a way that you can give us uh, feedback. But also um, do your 30-second elevator pitch. And if, if it – you know, if it's like this, it takes us to the depths of hell and back, you know, you might uh, might get you on the podcast. Yeah. Or <laughs> anything, really, anything that's interesting. But, you know, a lot of times – I don't know, y'all, this is a kind of a tangent, but uh, when you ask somebody about their book – and it takes them four minutes to tell you, mm-hmm. you know they hadn't thought about it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. for anyone writing a book, whether it's to, to be able to tell people out, about it out loud or if you're sending out queries to agents or writing a back cover blurb, like at some point you're going to have to figure out how to distill it down to a paragraph or two. So it's right. a valuable thing to do mm-hmm. for sure. And, and I can tell you the, uh, the way you know that it's not working, when you start seeing the person you're talking to, eyes turn in the, up in the back of their head like mm-hmm. they've got – some kind of alien that's taken over their body, you know, you know that 
you know, you're losing them. <laughs> I had an author say to me once, um, is it necessary to have a summary? I was like, um, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 No, when somebody asks you about your book, say, here, well, just read it. You know, you'll figure it out. No, yeah. uh, <laughs> One way to do it. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, um, everything is about that teaser to get people to just give something a try, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they do it on all the streaming channels. You know, you get a little 30-second teaser um authors just got to work on their you know that little teaser yeah that helps uh just enough it doesn't and that's the hard part you know you've written what 300 pages yeah how do you just distill it down to 15 to 20 seconds right yeah yeah you, you can't try to fit the whole story in there it's right. just you know enough to tell the people who are listening or reading what is this about and kind of what can they expect what sort of experience is the mm-hmm. read going to be i think yeah and i'm thinking about your book sarah you know it's like uh well, this woman couldn't get a date to her sister's wedding, so she decides to uh, build, you know, a robotic date, mm-hmm. and then things go off the rail from there. You know, that, that's enough, right? That's, yeah, like, yeah. And it's, I mean, with, <laughs> with that book, the thing that's nice and kind of easy about doing a summary for something like that is it's a high concept story. So it's pretty easy to distill it down to a one sentence log line. But, you know, there are books and movies that are, are wonderfully done that are much lower concept. And so it's harder to kind of um, explain what they're about, you know, like... One example is Annie Hall, which I think is a wonderful movie, but it's it's kind of hard to explain, well, what's that story? Mm-hmm. It's just like a man mm-hmm. and woman <laughs> falling in and out of love, which is like every story ever. <laughs> so, some, exactly. you know, some stories it's harder to to put into a summary, um, but you still have to do it if you're going to write a book. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have one. You're going to have to do it. That's no question about it. Uh, all right. Well, a little bit about uh, Libro, and then we're going to jump to our author feature, Avery Caswell. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER and claim your free audiobook. All right, well, uh, we're back. uh, Second uh, part of Act One. Uh, We've got an author feature here, Avery Caswell. Uh, Avery was actually part of our Charlotte Readers Book Club that uh, Mark Weston that's Novel Books and Charlie's Podcast uh, have going uh, that we had uh, uh, in June. And uh, she's written a book called Salvation. It's a true story um, based upon a true story. It's in a novel form, but it's based upon a true story about a kidnapping. Um, uh, it's, um, you know, it's hard to, I mean, it's a great book, uh, but uh, it's hard to believe that this happened. Uh, two young sisters who were kidnapped by a traveling evangelist in 1971. And, uh, so Avery has, uh, she's written a lot of uh, nonfiction work. She's an award-winning writer, uh, designer, and essayist, uh, uh, and uh, she's gotten a lot of great reviews for her work. This was her first novel, and uh, took her a while to write it. We talk about that uh, in my interview with her about uh, how and why that happened. Uh, it has something to do with uh, writing a memoir when the person, uh, well, not writing a memoir, writing a novel based upon what might originally been sort of autobiographical uh, the person uh, who's sharing the information with you is sort of tagging along and looking over your shoulder and giving you feedback and that kind of thing. So it took her a little bit longer. We talk about that. But she's gotten great reviews. Abigail DeWitt, who was actually on the podcast too, um, uh, she's the author of News of Our Loved Ones, uh, said this, based on the harrowing true story of two young girls abducted by a traveling preacher in 1971. This is a novel about delusion and determination, faith and grit, good and evil, meticulously researched and masterfully written a stunning debut by an important talent. So let's, uh, let's listen in to that interview now. Avery, uh, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you, Landis. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, congratulations on the novel, uh, Salvation. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about the book today and also uh, your writing process a little bit. The uh, thing I found interesting about this, it's uh, it's set in Charlotte. Uh, it's based on a true story uh, of a traveling preacher who kidnaps two small children. Uh, give us a little bit of flavor for the story, what attracted you to writing about it. Well, I was approached, goodness, um, almost 20 years ago, 18, 19 years ago, um, as I was picking my daughter up from daycare and a woman I kind of knew but didn't know well approached me and said you're a writer right and I said well yes um not a very accomplished writer but that was my intention to write she said well I've got a story and I need you to write it I said okay well what's your story and she said when I was seven and my sister was nine we were kidnapped by a traveling evangelist and no one in my family will talk about it I need someone to help me and I couldn't, I couldn't say no. That just sounded like such an intriguing story. And since I, I knew some members of her family, um, I felt compelled to help her and, and get this story out. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, what a hook, right? I mean, <laughs> when, you're, when you're thinking about it. And at the time, were you, were you in your Master of Fine Arts and Writing program yet or not? I was on my way to Iowa. Um, a couple months after that. And I had done some writing. I'd been in advertising for many years, Landis. So I was a copywriter. Um, and then I was commissioned after I sold my agency to write several institutional histories. I'd written the um, bicentennial history for the First Presbyterian Church. I had written the centennial history for the town of Cornelius. And this sounded to me like another history. So I thought, well, you interview everyone you can, you do some research, you find out what was going on in 1971 in Charlotte, you get the flavor of it, and you sit down and write it. Um, I was mistaken. It wasn't that kind of history at all. So it took me a lot more skill than I had at the time to do the story justice. And, and, and how did it shift from being that potentially engaging nonfiction story to the engaging fiction novel? That, that was a long and winding path that took us there. A um, couple reasons, really. One, of all the interviews I did, and I will say that um, Erthel Latta, who is Glory in the book, her family was very willing to talk to me, and I got a lot of good information that Erthel wasn't able to give me because she was seven when it happened and she didn't really remember but those family memories did not all align and more importantly her sister who's two years older than she what she remembered was not the same as what Erthel remembered so there was some conflict there and I I could have I could have worked with that but there were so many holes there were so many gaps this was 1971 when it happened um, the evangelist was no longer alive. It was hard to really string together a whole story. And the real the, the real moment when it became fiction was after I gave Erthel the first 60 pages to read and she didn't like any of them. <laughs> um, she, she hated it. <laughs> yeah, I should, I, we should say too that you and I met because we did a Charlotte Readers Book Club in June and, and we featured uh, your book there at, uh, at That's Novel Books and Story Charlotte blog was involved with Mark West as well. 
and you and Earthel came too, and y'all told this story, and you, and you do laugh and every time you tell the story, right? About how your first we laugh now. We yeah, laughed at us. We we yeah. were not laughing then. <laughs> yeah, you certainly weren't laughing because you'd put a lot of time into writing those first sixty pages, and you thought you were on your way until she said, "No, I don't like this." So, what what did you do then? I think part of it was she was. This is the first time she'd heard her story through someone else's eyes, and hearing that was alarming to her. And the first thing she said was, "You've got to change all the names." I don't want anyone knowing this was my family. So change all the names. That's, you know, the first step into to fiction. And then, as I said, it just kind of opened it up and I was able to invent a key character, the detective who ultimately did find the girls. And prior to it being fiction, I had no way of, of including that character. So the main thing that came of that really awful, awkward meeting was we started to build a bridge over the gap that separated Erthel and myself. And we, we realized we had to start trusting each other. She had been offended that I kept asking her for details, like what was in her house? What was the furniture like? What did she have for dinner or breakfast? And she was offended that I was asking these questions. And she just said, we had the same things as everyone else. And I realized... I wasn't framing my questions in the right way. And I had to let her know why I needed to know these things. I needed the details so the story could come to life. And once she understood why I was asking, she was a lot more forthcoming with answers. So ironically, once we kind of made it fiction, it became more real. Yeah, and maybe in part, uh, because I've read the book and it is uh in parts, it's hard to take because, you know, the evangelist uh, was not feeding them well, was not taking care of them. Uh, they didn't eat the same things everybody else ate. Maybe that's why she didn't want to tell that part of the story. Um, they they were really uh, being abused during that period of time that uh, they were under her, I wouldn't call it her care, but under her control, right? Right, right. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about this person uh, you, in the book. Uh, you know, she's described as a very large woman, uh, lots of medical issues and requiring, you know, that the young girls help her even go to the bathroom because she's overweight and can't handle that chore on her own. And uh, uh, a little bit, maybe um not altogether there in terms of her cognitive abilities during this period? I would say her other medical conditions were, were eroding her cognitive functions. She is what we would today call, um, she was morbidly obese. And I think she continued to get larger while the girls were with her. Again, she's probably retaining water, fluids, um, her circulation was not good, which affected her cognitive abilities. And she just more and more could not move easily. So when she'd first arrived, she was ambulatory. But as time progresses, she needed a walker and then she could hardly, hardly move at all. Um, yeah, so and a, quite, little, quite a little context here, too, because, you know, this happened out right outside of Charlotte here. Um, She's coming through, you know, going to different churches, trying to have uh, revivals, if you will, and 
getting paid to do it. And she stays with this family and she offers to take these girls to the beach who've never been to the beach. And she takes them off and you would think, well, that would be very easy for the mother to track them down. But talk about that time period. And, you know, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have some of the things we have today to track people down when they left um, and didn't come back after a few weeks, the mother didn't know how to find them. And the interesting thing I found about the book was that uh, it also, the police did very little to search for this, these children. Missing children was not considered the crisis that it is today. This was way ahead, a decade before we started seeing children's pictures on milk cartons. Um, the police treated missing children as a domestic issue. It was usually thought that a non-custodial parent had taken the child or that the child had run away and would, you know, come back on his or her own accord. That police rarely did choose to get involved in these situations. Um, so you mentioned there was no cell phones or GPS tracking or anything. We did have telephones, but long distance was very expensive, very expensive. And it's, it's something, I mean, even my family, I can remember you waited till after five to make a long distance call. Ideally, you only called on the weekends if it was long distance because the rates went down. So we were all, you know, hesitant to make a long distance call. And, and where would she call? She didn't know where they were going. She just knew they were going to Savannah originally because that's where Mother Franklin, this evangelist's home was. She had a condo in Savannah. And the girls did stay there for some time. And two weeks was the assumption. That sounded like a vacation length. So it was two weeks and their mother thought in two weeks they would, they would be back. And two weeks came and went and they did not return. And they did make one phone call and both the girls remember that phone call. They made it from a telephone booth as they were loaded up, the car was loaded up, they were pulling a trailer and they were leaving Savannah and they did call. They made one call home and spoke with the mother. The girls didn't get to talk to her, but the mother Franklin spoke to the mother. And that's how their mother knew they had left Savannah, but where they went from there, she had no idea. She had no wherewithal to, to trace them. Hmm. All right, I've got some more questions, but uh, you got a little reading for us. Uh, you want to tell us uh, where in the book you're reading and who's in the scene and set it up? I'm going to read from the beginning. There you go. Good. I'm give you a little context. From a helicopter, the place where Del Monroe used to live with her four children, that part of the city known as Druid Hills looks green and lush, an abundance of broad-leaved trees branch out over rooftops and yards. When city planners outline Charlotte's neighborhoods on their maps, Druid Hills shapes up like the right half of a wobbly faceted diamond. Not that diamonds ever cut a high profile in Druid Hills, except maybe those obtained without the benefit of legal tender. The Munros stayed right along the topmost border of the diamond in a compact two-bedroom brick duplex just off Doris Avenue. Dell's mother, Mama Tina, told her daughter she was flat in over her head living so far away from family and trying to raise four little ones on her own. But what did that old woman know, living out in the country as she did? Staying in Druid Hills counted for something. Residents considered it every bit as fine as Myers Park, 
Charlotte's richest neighborhood. Many of Dal's neighbors were veterans of the Second World War, living their version of the American dream. On Saturday mornings, they woke to cut the grass and wash their Delta 88s and Chrysler Imperials. On Sunday, they took their families to church. As many Sundays as she could, Dal dressed her four children in their finest and took them to services around the corner at St. Luke's Missionary Baptist, even though some weeks it took a great deal of effort to make this happen. One summer Sunday in 1971, before the sun was high enough to cast a shadow, Dell heard Glory and Willie June fussing at each other. It was only July and her daughters were bored and picking on each other and causing her misery. She told them to hush before they woke their brothers and went to the kitchen at the back of the house away from their bickering. An oblong dinette table banded by shiny chrome filled the room. Four vinyl covered chairs hugged its gleaming edges. A noisy Frigidaire stood next to the back door. An electric range with two working burners was wedged between the sink and a narrow row of cabinets, most of their doors long gone. On the countertop below was her radio. She switched it on and soon the noise of squabbling girls was blanketed by Reverend Ike's velvety voice. Ain't no sin in money. His words filled her kitchen. I like money. I need money. I want money. Say it with me now. You gotta believe. Oh, she did. Every month, Dell sent a dollar to the Reverend's blessing plan. Every month in return, she received a new copy of Action Newsletter in the mail. Remember, this is the do-it-yourself church, the headline read. The only savior in this philosophy is the God in you. Pretty soon now, she could feel it. Blessings would be falling down upon her like summer rain, soft at first and then a deluge. Why? Because she believed. <laughs> Thank you for that. Hey, uh, Avery, in your, in your bio, you talk about having an interest in the blurred edges between religion and magic. And of course, in, in this story, also the blurred edges that where tragedy comes into religion as well. Uh, where does that come from, this uh, this fascination with these topics? That's a, that's a really great question. I've, I grew up as a very devout church-going person, um, learned all the lessons that I was supposed to, but still was always drawn to, to stories with more magic in them. And as I became an adult, I started to see how much religion relies on a belief in the unseen and the unexplainable. And I, I see a lot of crossover and unfortunately have seen some things mismanaged on the organized religion side that is common in the magic side as well. <laughs> I think there's a lot of crossover. I think there's a lot of showmanship in both. Um, and it's both require that suspension of disbelief. And I was a theater major, which is also uh, magic um, in a way. Exactly. Uh, well, a couple of writing life questions. You talked about how long this book uh, took to, from the time the idea first hit you and then the, the final publication and lots of things along the way. But, uh, uh, and it's unique in the sense that you had someone, you know, riding along with you who'd actually been involved in that uh, experience. But what, what kind of lessons did you learn from that experience that you'll take into your next uh, project? 
I would say never stop writing. Um, this book took a long time to get published, um, partially because I didn't have the skills necessary to write it well in the beginning. And then later, because of political issues, it was very hard for this novel to get published. Um, and I could have just sat around waiting, but I kept writing. So I have other other books, other manuscripts that are complete. I'll have um, one coming out in 2023. Um, it's important to just keep, keep producing work and not give up. Um, I, like you said, I had Erthel riding along on the journey with me and I didn't want to give up for her. I, I really wanted to cross the finish line with this. And it has been so gratifying to see what a difference it's made in her life. She okay. has opened okay. up so much. She's, she just feels like it's her testimony to share what mm -hmm. happened to her. And she has encouraged other people to, to, to step forward and share their stories. It's, um, been more than therapeutic for her. It's really get, allowed her to find her voice. Uh, did it allow you to find your voice in fiction writing? Yes, it did. Yeah. It did. I guess we yeah. both we both have a um, a happy ending. Yeah, and so don't keep us in suspense. If you can share what what's coming out in two thousand twenty three, I've got a book, a novel that um, also kind of looks at that blurred edge of uh, magic and religion. It takes place in a small southern town. It's called Dry Spell. It takes place during a terrible drought. And there are two families that live fairly close to one another. Uh, one, a professor's family that very, you know, do things by the book, um, follow the rules. Um, but they have a teenage son in that household who is not doing things by the book and following any rules. And their neighbor is a woman, um, Maggie Baxter Bliss, and she's descended from the Gullah. And she still uses a lot of those healing practices and has rampant gardens where she's growing all kinds of medicinal herbs and plants and she treats people much to her adult daughter's disgust um so there's a lot of a lot of tension within each household and then the households interact and create even more tension so that's great and amongst all your writing you also do something similar to what i do you've got a podcast right you want to tell people about your podcast so, well, I have a podcast with my co-host, Marianne Sprangers. It's called Turn the Page. And we talk like you do with other writers um, or other people in general who have turned the page, made a difference, um, gone down a different path, um, mm. took, took a bold and daring step, made a difference. That's yeah. great. Any uh, last minute thoughts or tips for that? Because, uh, uh, you know, you got this website, uh, and I noticed a blog post on there, novel gazing, and one of the lines from there is part of the writer's journey is trusting that you'll arrive at the right destination. Did you always feel you're going to arrive at the destination in writing this book? And and where did you come up with that philosophy? I firmly believe that. And I am more of a seat of the pants writer. I think yeah. I asked you, you're kind yeah. of a hybrid um, yeah. outliner and fly by the seat of your pants. But I think something magical happens when you're writing. And I write my first drafts um, free um, pen on paper. And I am constantly amazed at how that writing takes me somewhere other than I thought I was going to go. And something opens up. And I, I, I also have a manuscript that's um, an illuminated novel, so it's actually illustrated. And I was writing it third person. And the character just kind of took over and said, 
get out of the way. This is my story. And it's first person and it is her telling the story. And I've talked to other writers who have had that same experience. And it's just sit down and, and let it happen. Um, yeah. Just just let it go. You, you, if you try to control it too much, it stops being fun and you don't get your best work. Well, it's uh, I've always said the secret to writing is magic. And so there you go. Right. Yeah, we we agree on that for sure. Hey, look, Avery, it's been great having you on the podcast. Uh, appreciate you being here with us. Oh, Landis, thank you so much. It's been great fun. I really appreciate it. If you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the costs of this podcast, please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. Okay, we're in Act 2, and the topic is poetry, and uh, I don't know, I've, I may have given you short shift uh hannah um i'm telling everybody i've like had one poetry class and that's not my strong suit i know sarah's <laughs> done poetry but what about you have you done some poetry hannah? I, i'm gonna say yes um i'm gonna, say, gonna say yes yes, Does that mean uh, yes? yes because <laughs> as your lawyer you need to be more uh <laughs> the reason i'm like i don't know is because when i was younger and when i mean when i say younger i mean like literally yeah. like you know 14 i was very into poetry yeah. and i was like submitting poems to okay. like books and stuff and i did get featured in a book so yeah. i'm gonna go ahead and classify oh, myself good. as a 14 a year old poet, poet ge poetry genius <laughs> but <laughs> haven't there revisited yeah. since that time so <laughs> Why not? Well, Why didn't you go back? You know, I, mm -hmm. I kind of do. I don't know. I kind of, I, I don't know. I think I just like didn't want to be structured. <laughs> that didn't really fit with my yeah. like writing style as I got older, I guess. But I love working with poets. Yeah. So I've worked on it with a ton of poets and on poetry events and poetrias and stuff like that. And it's like one of my favorite things to read and talk about. I think it's just beautiful. Um, so maybe I'm more of a fan now. <laughs> yeah. And, and we got some great stuff in this segment. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, though, as I said, I've only had one, one class. I took it at Charlotte Lit on, on poetry and it was, it was great to do. And when, when you talk to poets and I've interviewed a number, um, they talk about how write, writing poetry is helps them in their prose writing. Has that been true for you, Sarah? Yeah, for sure. And I think, it, you know, it kind of goes every way, no matter what you're writing, you can always get something out of experimenting with other forms. Um, so I think with poetry, it can help you understand the musicality of language in a way that can be great in prose. Like I, I love it when I read a novel, and I feel like the language is musical, and I, I want to hear it read out loud. Um, and so that's something that poetry kind of teaches you to do well. And just having that sort of density of language, too, where you're really paying attention to every word, I think is, is something that you learn how to do in poetry. Um, but, you know, by the other token, you can, if you have experience writing stories, you can learn how to create a poem that has turns in it and that kind of mm -hmm. takes the reader on a journey. That's great. Well, as it so happens, um, you know, we uh, have a little synergy here because this week's uh, Charlotte Lit two-minute tip uh, relates to the topic of poetry. So let's listen in. Welcome. I'm Charlotte Lit co-founder Kathy Collins with this week's two-minute tip. 
Today I want to talk a bit about the difference between mystery and confusion in poetry. Fiction and nonfiction writers, rest assured today's advice applies to all kinds of writing, so stay tuned. However, there is something about its compressed language that makes poetry an easy vessel for elusive imagery and layer cake stacking of elusive metaphors. Sometimes we slip innocently into the use of confusing language and syntax. We're simply searching for the words we need to get our own bearings rather than intentionally trying to obfuscate. This sort of confusion isn't a mystery at all. It's a first draft issue that can be easily addressed through the revision process. At other times, poets develop complex or multi-layered metaphors to hide a difficult truth, shame, or some other uncomfortable experience. Often these sorts of poems feel mysterious even to the poet. It is, after all, much easier to label an experience mysterious than to do the hard work of understanding it and then conveying that understanding to readers in straightforward language. By straightforward, I don't mean simplistic or overly plain. One of the gifts of poetry is its richness, the way it compels us to search for symbol, metaphor, and other literary devices to express an experience with fresh language. Rather, by straightforward, I mean language that guides readers from A to Z along a path that makes sense. That path can be linear, spiral, upside down, or involuted, but it shouldn't be convoluted. Finally, there are the times when we deliberately complicate the telling of an experience because of false beliefs like good poetry is like a good riddle, it should make readers work or complex ideas must be rendered through complicated imagery, or worst of all, I want to use as many philosophical and literary allusions as possible so that readers will know how smart I am. Impulses like these lead toward obscurity, not mystery. I happen to believe that the apprehension of mystery is one of the best reasons to write a poem. I want to put readers in touch with the ineffable as I experience it, and since mystery is, by definition, something profound, inexplicable, or secretive, something that is sometimes beyond understanding, we may need to call upon meta metaphor and myth to show not what that experience is, but what it is like. To do so, we want to guide readers carefully, step by step, image by image through the poem. The more complex the idea, the more difficult the experience, the clearer and more grounded our language and imagery must be. For this reason, literary and artistic allusions should serve as aids for drawing readers closer to the mystery instead of barriers to their approach. Allusions work best when a reader doesn't need to understand the literary history to comprehend the poem. Foreknowledge of all kinds should enhance the reading experience, not be a prerequisite for it. We want our readers to feel so intrigued by a reference they are drawn to learn more not so confused they simply turn the page. The difference between the two isn't much of a mystery. That's it for today. Please visit us at charlottelit.org for more tips like this and to see our full catalog of writing classes, readings, and special lit literary events. All right. Uh, as always, um, a lot of uh, good information packed into that Two-minute tip. In fairness, about two minutes and 45 seconds. But we give them grace because there's some good stuff good, yeah. good stuff in there, right? So th thank you, Definitely. Kathy, for that. Uh, thoughts on that, uh, co-hosts? Yeah, I mean, I think Kathy is getting a kind of 
an eternal struggle for me with the reading and writing and enjoying poetry is like, where do you draw that line between confusion and simplicity? And I, I think sometimes people think that poetry is meant to be difficult. Yeah. Like it's meant to be difficult <laughs> to write. It's meant to be difficult to read. Am I raising my hand? Or yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's meant um, to be difficult for Landis Way is what it's meant to be difficult for. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think you're not alone in that for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, you think back to like, Shakespeare, even in, in his plays. I mean, I, I love Shakespeare, but I would read it in school with like, you have the text on one page and then you have mm -hmm. the, the notes on the other <laughs> explaining it. And I think people right. feel that way about poetry where it's like, I need a guide to understand mm -hmm. what's actually happening here. Um, and I think you have to find that balance between how do you put enough layers into your poem that there is something to discover there and that you can read it multiple times and kind of get something more out of it on each read and it will reward the reader thinking about it and digging into it but not intentionally make it confusing or put in you know language that sounds fancy or complicated just for the sake of sounding fancy mm -hmm. <laughs> like it should be contributing to the meaning in some kind of way um, and I think some of the poems that are the most impactful are relatively simple, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so it's good to kind of think about what's the intention behind the language that you're using and the devices that you're using. And are they just there because they seem like a cool <laughs> idea or are they actually creating an experience for the reader that, that leaves them with some kind of meaning at the end of I the I think it, could, it was neat that she said it, it like kind of labels poetry as being mysterious too. And that kind of relates to, relates to what you're saying is like, I don't know. It shouldn't be something that, you know, I think for people who are very into writing poetry and do it often and they're kind of just like, okay, how can I make this as artistic and like complicated as possible? It doesn't really resonate as much as it would if it was mm -hmm. simpler and maybe just a little mysterious to make the person reading it just think a little bit deeper about the concept. I think that's what I always loved about poetry is when uh, maybe that ties into why I like mysteries and thrillers, stuff like that so much is just like I like to think a little bit about what's happening under the surface. I love metaphors. I love all that kind of stuff. I think it's really fun. And um, I also love music too. So I think poetry and music with, when you think about lyrics and stuff like that, where it's like, okay, what is this person actually trying to say right now? Uh, maybe that's the way to kind of mm -hmm. look at it is like, this is sort of a little mysterious. This is good. I, I like this, but not overly complicated. Yeah, I liked her comment, intrigued to learn more, but not Yes, <laughs> like going right over your head. You don't want yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. I kind of equate it to the, to the pastor or the minister who in the sermon <clears throat> drops about you know, 50 names of uh, theologians uh, in their sermon uh, of people they've read instead of uh, telling a story with uh, three points uh, and, a, and, mm -hmm. and a conclusion, you know. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've also realized that there's all different kinds of poetry, right? I mean, there's, you know, from one end, there's, mm -hmm. there's slam poetry. There's there's the, the more, you, you mentioned Shakespeare and you mentioned, you know, so uh, there's a large gamut there. And uh, when she mentioned, you know, linear and spiral and upside down and inside out and all that kind of thing, I'm thinking, well, hell, even a linear <laughs> thinker like myself might be able to pull one off. Every you should now give, it and and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. give it a try. Yeah. Well, that's, that's why I took the course. Give it a try. History poem. Um, well, uh Exactly. Uh, well, that's a great lead in to, uh, to our guest blogger yeah. today. Uh, you want to introduce yeah. uh, him, Hannah? And, uh, yeah, tell we've us got a Ken Chamley, and he wrote a great post for our blog called Squeezing the Excess Out of a Poem, which, yeah, it ties pretty well into this tip that we just went through. Um, Ken is a 2022 Gilbert Chapel Distinguished Poet for the National Carolina Poetry Society. His poems have appeared in the North Carolina Literary Review, Worcester Review, 
Ekphrasis, probably butchering that, and many others, including eight editions of Cacalac, an anthology of Carolina poets, um, his poetic biography of the 19th century, American landscape painter Albert Bierstad. A lot of words that I don't know if I'm pronouncing well in this. <laughs> um, and his forthcoming is is from Stephen F. Austin University Press in 2023. The new book of poems, if not these things, will be published by Kelsey Books in the fall of 2022. So let's. Yeah, and I know the Carolina Poetry Society would be glad to know that you've made them the national. Carolina Poetry Society. Oh. <laughs> I'm just going to bl- blame all of that on my <laughs> yeah. pregnancy brain. So, <laughs> no, that's good. Just I'm, roll I'm, with it, Ken. We got a promotion there. Yeah, and I met I met uh, Ken at the uh, he was run, at Brevard College and where he taught for many years in the English department. Uh, he was running the Looking Glass Rock uh, Writers Conference that I have now been to twice, and uh, so. We connected, and uh, he was writing some poetry. So I said, "Send us a, send us in a blog post." And it's really, uh, it's really pretty good. We're going to play um, his uh, uh, performance reading of it uh, now, and uh, you be the judge. But I think there's a lot of good stuff in here. So uh, here we go. Hi, I'm Ken Shamley, poet and teacher. I live in Western North Carolina and taught literature, composition, and creative writing for 40 years at Brevard College. I was the first director of the Looking Glass Rock Writers Conference, but now I'm retired from undergraduate teaching and conference directing and enjoy writing and reading on a non-academic schedule. I offer poetry workshops and master classes for the Great Smokies Writing Program of UNC Asheville, and I'm a proud member of the North Carolina Writers Network and the North Carolina Poetry Society. Squeezing the excess out of a poem. In writing a poem about personal experience, the first draft often weighs in like an overpacked suitcase, full of items we think we'll need for the trip. We lay out sensory detail, setting and backstory, fold and place other people, and often a conclusion or aftermath. All of this belongs in the original notes, the impulse scribbling, and it is good to have a full bucket before drawing out the pebbles that one will serve. Poets choose these details for authenticity, thinking a poem must be true to what happened and honest to its history or context, particularly a poem with a narrative arc. It's okay to write fat first drafts to get a poem started, so don't worry about those deep fried lines or the extra cheese. You'll cut them later. Experience, what happened and everything that comes with it. But poems are not journalism or strict autobiography and have no need to be comprehensive. You might begin a poem with a full catalog of experience, but excess tends to obscure essence. A poem is a compression, not a real-time retelling, rather than the latitude of a short story which may lead, develop, motivate, direct, and misdirect, and eventually confront the protagonist and the reader too A poem is choosy, representative, focused. In a poem, the elements of a story are spare. You dress the skeleton to cover the narrative bones. Think of inclusive experience in a poem like going car camping. You pack the trunk and back seat with a roomy tent, sleeping bag, a two-burner stove and a gas lantern, 
maybe a lawn chair, a screen room, and an ice chest with raw meat and beer. Weight and space are not a concern when you're loading up a car. But later you want to go backpacking. Now you have to streamline, reduce weight and space. You will want a lightweight tent and a sleeping bag, shelter, not luxury, a compact stove and only the necessary utensils. Food choices are recalculated for nutrition and volume. You must carry only the essentials because you and the pack frame are now the mode of transport. Think of a poem in its essence as the relative lightness and freedom of backpacking as opposed to the loaded car of experience that was packed in your garage. Essence, the intangibles. Why does this poem matter? What is its human connection? The above questions are not answered directly in a poem as that makes it either didactic or dull as nothing is asked of the reader by way of thinking, association, or tracing its metaphors. The poet might not have clear answers to these questions either, but hinting at them is fine because ambiguity and mystery are mainstays in poetry. Essence asks, what is implied but not said directly, and is often hard to paraphrase. Strong poems reveal subtly, guide you toward the exit, but let go before the push bar and the bright light. Weak poems announce their intent in a summative or explanatory fashion. There are exceptions to this, of course, but when I think of a poet like Mary Oliver, who can be rather enunciatory, her endings seem to me not slapped on the table and here you go truisms, but challenging, proverbial, mindful endings because they leave me something to ponder, not a wrapped package. Process, bringing experience and essence together, the squeeze. You work toward the essence of a poem when you comb it and cull unneeded detail, the extraneous information about an experience that is part of its formational notes, but no longer part of the momentum that everything must serve. The first squeeze is then to get rid of the unnecessaries, the pretty wrapping, the ribbons and bows you love, but know are there because you love them, not because they have to be. Go through your poem's backpack and leave cans and bottles in the car. The second squeeze to a new poem is to clear it of excess verbiage, redundancy, clutter like auxiliary verbs and the verb to be, adverbs, and unnecessary prepositional phrases and articles. Weigh every word for how it fits the poem's language system, diction, denotation, connotation, and its figurative thread. Each squeeze now, we're talking about subsequent drafts, takes the poem closer to the melding of experience and essence, the right balance. Let the working elements of the poem bring the intangibles, the feelings and emotions. Don't blare them. If readers can sense lifeblood in a poem, they know there is a beating heart. Okay, well, uh, before we jump in and talk about this, uh, because it's got so much, uh, I just think, fantastic information here, uh, I want to let uh, listeners know you can go uh, see the uh, uh, print version of this uh, at our website, uh, charlotterspodcast.com, on the uh, uh, Community Voices page, uh, along with our individual blogs for the host. There's the uh, community blog and the community vlog, and you'll find uh, Ken's post on our community blog. So 
go check that out. But this is just yeah. too much to jump into, friends. What do you think? It sounded like a poem. His the whole post did. You know what I mean? I was just like, how are you doing this? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> great figurative language. thing was like a whole metaphor. <laughs> like, I thought. <laughs> think it's, it's written by a poet, right? I mean, in a, in prose format. So he definitely used his poetry oh, skills oh to gosh, write this. Oh my gosh, he's amazing. Right? Yeah, and I loved yeah, like definitely. just listening to him read it too. I just I felt like that really added a lot to it, but. Um, I love where he was talking about, like, why does this poem matter? Like having that kind of in the back of your mind as you're doing all of the writing. And um, I think that's such an interesting, like, sometimes I don't, I don't know if poets think that way. Like, just, <laughs> it's like, what is, what is happening here? You know, like, what is, what is the backbone of this? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure to them, you know, it might seem differently, but just, I think that's a really special thing when a poet's able to effectively identify why what they're saying matters and being able to put that on the page and just using um you know the ambiguity and mystery aspect of that too in order to make something beautiful and make sense to the reader i thought that was great yeah for sure um and i also i love how this ties in so well yeah. to the charlotte two minute tip i don't think we even planned that but they, no, they we, actually cover we, a lot we of the did, same we ideas did. i asked kathy to do <laughs> Oh, okay. I, told her, I told her poetry was coming. She said, okay, oh, I'll good. do poetry. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. <laughs> um, yeah, but they, they covered even some of the same ideas mm -hmm. about like mystery and poetry and, and meaning. Um, and I think Ken made some really great points about truth in poetry. Uh, I, I think that a poem does need to have some sort of truth to it um, in order for it to really strike a reader or hit home and, and resonate. But he did a good job differentiating between truth and autobiography or documentary. You know, it doesn't have to exactly represent something that you have lived in your life or anything from the real world. You know, it, it can be fictionalized, but there needs to be some sort of essence to it that, that rings true in a kind of emotional or philosophical way, I think. Um, I also really yes. loved his backpacking meta yes. metaphor of, you know, <laughs> think of your poem as like going backpacking and I think that that's so important because you know if you're backpacking you're moving you need to be able to carry everything on your back so that you can go on a journey and a, a poem that's that's great I think does take a reader on some sort of a journey it, it it doesn't just sort of describe one idea and kind of leave you in that same place it starts in one place and then it moves to a different one and has some sort of a, a shift by the end of it um, and so I think that's a good a good thing to think about is like how do you keep your poem sort of light on its feet and nimble so that it can take the reader on that journey without being bogged down by extraneous ideas and images and you know tangents and might seem interesting but aren't really helping you get where you need to go yeah i thought it was a great analogy is, is a, you know some of the things he said in here that went along with it uh like don't worry about the deep fried lines <laughs> i love the that cheese, cut the you know? cheese <laughs> what he's talking about <laughs> what, yeah <laughs> what he's talking about is the same thing that happens in prose. You know, you go through an, e an editing pro And I just thought, well, because poetry is so, some of them are so short that, well, they just, you know, they whip them off and whatever. But there's a lot of cutting that goes on, I, I suppose, and mm -hmm. listening to these poets talk about uh, what you do in poetry and just the visual of, all right, you've packed this car, you've got, you know, you've got your two cases of beer and all your Cheetos and everything else. Well, you're going to have to mm -hmm. pare down, you know, you're, <laughs> it's going to yeah. be a water bottle and a couple of other things. And then, and then you're going to head out on that, uh, on that hike. And, and also this line toward the end, um, which I think gets uh, a little bit to the mystery of what Kathy was talking about. You need to guide the reader to the exit, um, but let them uh, mm -hmm. go through the push bar. You know, mm -hmm. 
very interesting, you know, that you're, it's not like you tied up in a neat package, you know, you kind of take them to this point, you give them enough information that uh, they want to hit the push bar and, and go right. think about what happened. I think you said, next. you know, is yeah. weak, weaker poems kind of announce the intent in the end in an explanatory manner. Um, so you kind of hand the the mm -hmm. reader what's happening on a silver platter. Like that's not as effective as a poem that kind of you lead them to the end and then you kind of let them interpret the rest. Mm. Yeah, it ties in with what we were talking about before with like how much mm -hmm. do you make things complicated versus simple for the reader? And I think it's good to, you know, readers, especially I think with something as small as a poem, they do want to work a little bit. They want to have that experience of feeling like they're kind of interpreting and discovering some things on their own, but you don't want to make it so complicated mm -hmm. that they just feel like there's nothing to kind of grab onto there. Yeah, that's, it's really good. And I, I like that line excess obscures essence as well. Mm -hmm. Um, well, it's like there's, I think it's a Mark Twain quote. I could be wrong, but it's a quote that's something like, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter book. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that really applies to poetry. Like it's the kind of the most, the shortest, most condensed form of writing. So in a sense, you probably do have to do the most rewriting and cutting and revising to get it down to that, that really, you know, I, I used nice to think about package. that as a lawyer. If I had more time, I'd write you a shorter <laughs> demand letter. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, uh, but yeah, I'd that's, love to uh, read some of your great, demand letters sometime, <laughs> just for fun. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> well, probably my most famous came at the very end of my career, where I took a pro bono case uh, representing somebody who was being evicted from their apartment because they Ooh. had cats, and I was able to uh, write a very lengthy demand letter that uh, allowed them to stay in their in their unit uh, by convincing them that the uh, Cat was a support a support animal. <laughs> I'm sure that's true. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. It, it was. Uh, but I, you know, I, and the reason I, what I did was because they allowed dogs um, as support animals, mm -hmm. but they weren't allowing cats as support mm -hmm. animals. So I pulled out mm -hmm. the discrimination card. I, it's the only time I've ever taken up for cats. You know, yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, they talked about that letter at my retirement party. So you do all oh this stuff gosh. in 35 years of practice and all these things, and you get known for the cat letter. You know, so, <laughs> the cat letter. Uh, well, animals, I'm telling you, like anything. It's important yeah. work. <laughs> Love animals. Yeah. Maybe, maybe need to yeah, yeah. sometime. Um, well, this is a good example, folks. If you um, want to participate with us, uh, check out our community blog um, and submit to it because uh, 750 words or less, so we're going to put it on the on the website. We're going to talk about it in the newsletter. We'll uh, feature it uh, on the podcast, so, uh, so do that. And speaking of that... Uh, If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750 word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Hannah, uh, what do you think? We're going to have Sarah uh, 
We're going to put her on the spot with some poetry. Yes. Right? Yeah. I'm right. I feel like Sarah is the perfect person to be a poet because of her voice alone. <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sarah. And, and we're going to have a, we're going to have a read some, but first yeah. let's Sarah, tell us a little bit about uh, this chat book you put together that I think is free on your website, right? Yeah, so this is a project I did a couple of years ago. It's a chat book called Weird Women. <laughs> um, yep. And it's it was something that I just kind of did for myself, really. I, I love writing poetry. I've written it since I was a kid. I actually studied it in college and did like a, a book of poetry for my honors thesis. But it's something that I've never really spent that much time time and effort on especially as an adult you know I've just I've been pursuing screenwriting and fiction more for my career so poetry kind of goes to the back burner um, and so I wanted something to, to encourage myself to write poetry a little bit more actively um, and so deciding I was going to put together a chapbook was a way to get myself to kind of get on that <laughs> and actually write some poems because um, it encouraged me to have like an end goal to work towards and also it gave me sort of a unifying principle to write around. Once I decided on that that title of Weird Women and that sort of idea of like just exploring different female characters in each of the poems, that gave me almost a prompt, um, which made it easier to write towards something, I think. Um, so yeah, it was just like a fun little personal project. I just... I, I mean, I didn't even technically self-publish it because it doesn't have like a ISBN number or anything. I just <laughs> made a PDF and uploaded it it's on there, my website. Right. So yeah, it's there. You can you can download it if you're interested. Well, you ought to create um, a you know an ISBN, put it up on uh, you know on online for free, uh, Amazon, wherever, and have people download it and give you feedback yeah. on it and that kind of thing. You know? Yeah, I could do that it's too. Very, yeah, very easy to do. Um, but uh, so, how many weird women show up in your chat book? I think there are maybe 15 Ooh, okay, or so. Good group, <laughs> squad. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sounds like they could take over the world. Yeah. Uh, and you've got two poems we're going to play today and, and comment on. Do you want Which one do you want to mm -hmm. do first, Some Days or, or the Salem? Um, I guess we can start with Salem because that one actually is in the chat book. So that one I wrote a few years ago. And then the other one is something that I wrote more recently, okay. um, which is not in the chat book. Okay, so yeah, well, we can a little start bit with both. Salem. Well, let's play Salem. I really enjoyed this poem. And uh, let's play it. We'll talk about it. Salem. I dreamed I had red hair and wore bells. Coven darling, singing in fire, saint of secret things. I rode the deep green for a spell, and dipped a slake with bowing wolves, ringed the ravens in their laughing mummers play, night cowled, my wrists moon spangled. I kissed the crescent moon, that dying eye, processed in raiment where the slick things mingle. I was not afraid to die. But morning finds me moony, bone china brittle. I swallow the thin air like an oath. Dry day is keeping on outside my window, a girl already at the wheat. White cap sat atop the rose that stretched from left to right like barren pews. Bare, too, the droning of doves over day's bleary eye, the bare branches, the sky a slack Madonna blue. My life awaits me, the crops, the loaves to knead, the wool to dye, and, coming down the corn, three men bearing stones. Okay, what do you think, Hannah? <laughs> so good. I like Your voice sounds amazing reading that also. <laughs> I'm just like, it's kind of eerie. 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's a little bit, it's like, a little spooky, yeah, it's it? like got that yeah. smooth texture, but it's very eerie sounding. Oh, so good. Great. Like, I feel like the imagery is just beautiful in that as well. Like, how do you, so when you're writing something like that, do you just sort of like, is that something that you just get inspiration for? Like, as you're doing something, I mean, something like, like the Salem witches or like, some, you know, something like that. Was it an October poem? Yeah. Or like, you know, I have no memory of writing that. <laughs> I, I actually don't even remember like what inspired it. Um, I, I know that I wanted to write something in a form, which that poem does have like some yeah. symmetrical form and rhyme to it. Um, most of what I write is free verse, but I think I, I was just kind of wanting to try something different every now and then. Um, I don't know. I, I, I love poetry that's very imagistic, both to read and to write. So sometimes that's where I get an idea from is just if there's mm -hmm. an image that grabs me. Um, something visual that kind of inspires a poem. And I think this was one of those cases where I just, I liked the sort of images that came into my tell. mind around it. Yeah. And I sort of built, yeah, like the, the almost, I don't know if you would say there's like characters in a story, but as much as there are characters in a story in there, I built that around just kind of the images that, um, that inspired it's me. It's funny that you say you don't really remember writing it because it's almost like you were possessed <laughs> while you were reading it a little bit. That's sort of what it sounds yeah. like, like the energy. In a few Yeah, state. when you're like, I'm not, the, I'm not afraid to die. Like, it's just sort of like, ooh, it's very encompassing, I feel. <laughs> well, I, I was just, uh, it sounded like a, a shout out against uh, misogyny. And I'm wondering what three men really irritated you that week that uh, were coming down the path with stones, you know? I took care of that. Yeah, That's fine. You, did you just use your witch's power to you know yeah yeah, yeah of course <laughs> as we do yeah. uh yeah we don't know what happened in the sequel to that poem i i guess you can make that mm -hmm. a thriller you know that uh she, she either gets on a broomstick or twinkles her nose or whatever but uh yeah, that, <laughs> one of the two <laughs> the bewitched version yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of the two no but i, I it's really it, it, it you know i was thinking about setting too did you have did you have a vision of it being somewhere like in uh you know, the, the, the Northeast, the New England area, um, maybe the fallish, yeah. you know, with the wheat and that kind of thing. But you don't remember, so you don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember any specific. I mean, when I think about that sort of like idea to me, I do think of, you know, the Salem type of right. area and New England and fall. I remember there was a book that I used to love when I was a kid by, um, I think his name is Chris Van Allsburg. He, he wrote uh, Jumanji and a bunch of like famous kids books. But there was a book that he wrote that was about, I don't remember what it's called, but it was about a witch. And it just had like the most beautiful illustrations of like fields of corn and wheat and very sort of autumnal images and stuff. Um, and I, I loved that book when I was a kid. So I think of that sort of imagery. Um, I think of, maybe this was around the time that I wrote this actually, there was a movie that came out a few years ago which I also don't remember the title of, which is not very helpful. You sound but, like me these um, days. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know that thing with that person? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, but I think the the actress Anya Taylor-Joy, do you know who I'm talking mm -hmm. about? I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right. Um, but she was in it, and it's about like witches and that sort of period in history of, I think it was around the time of the Salem Witch Trials. Um, and that had like some great imagery in it as well. So I, I like that sort of like somewhat creepy mm. mystical but not totally like harry potter level right. fantasy like that sort of in between realm i think is really interesting um yeah and sometimes it's just nice to kind of be in that little pumpkin spice kind of mood I guess. all right well we <laughs> exactly uh we've got another yeah. we've got another one here it's a little different it's not in the chat book you said you did it recently <clears throat> we'll talk about it in a minute but let's listen to it some days 
Some days I believe in God and other days I don't. Some days I'm connected to everything that has ever lived. My marrow is tree sap and the sacred tomb-sealed dust of a pharaoh's tongue. And other days I'm as alone as the space within a zero. Some days eternity stirs beneath my skin like magma. Some days I wash the stove and rub soap into my nails and forget heaven entirely. Some days I'm haunted by other deaths and lit to swooning by other joys. Some days I lose to searching for something I had already given up before I was born. Some nights I sit up feeling the whole ocean, raw with grief for every version of the world. I hang as if from nails. I ache so hard I vanish. And some nights I sleep without dreaming. Some days I'm in awe of the very birds in the backyard, all air and breath and black wings. And other days a bird is just a dirty, short-lived thing. Sometimes when the rain shrouds me, I'm electric, kite pole, dazzling with Job's fire. Some days I'm loved to madness, and some days no god could be real who would love me. It doesn't matter anyway. It's not a truth for me to know. I live regardless, and I'll die regardless, and maybe I'll live on. Then why does my heart weigh in my chest like an unrollable stone? And why do I stand here weeping long, long after the rain? Wow. <laughs> so <clears throat> tell us, Sarah, tell us what inspired this. Um, I think this one was more of just coming from like an emotional place and things that were going on in my life. Um, and it's easy to access the sort of emotional periods in your life, I think, really in a direct way through poetry. You can do it through fiction as well or, you know, screenwriting or playwriting or whatever it is. But sometimes it's it's almost more um, there's less of a filter when you're putting it into a poetic form. And so it's nice to be able to just write something that you can do a little bit more quickly and that you can kind of um, almost attack those like philosophical or psychological ideas more directly. Um, and yeah, this is also just another case where I, I wanted to write a poem and I hadn't written one in a while. So I just decided to do it. Um, and again, like I, I think images are often what comes to me first. So some of the the kind of images and, and visuals in the poem were what came to me first, and then I built things out from around there. Um, whereas if I'm writing prose, I tend to start with a story more and then kind of build the images around it. So um, for me, it's like a, a backwards process, but, I guess. But what about the mood? Because um, you talked about <clears throat> images, but you had to be in a certain mood to write this. And uh, did you, did, if you don't write it all at one time, how do you maintain that? Mm -hmm sort of mood through the process of creating something like yeah, this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, with poetry, at least it's easy because at least for me, like you can write a whole poem in one sitting. So it's pretty easy to at least get a first draft down all in one one time when you're like in that headspace. Um, whereas obviously if you're writing some, something like a novel, it can take years and years. And so you have to find ways maybe to put yourself in the emotional state that you need to be in. But for a poem, typically I'll write the first draft pretty much as soon as I have the idea, if I have the time. Um, and then I, I like to put it away and then maybe come back a few days later and do some revisions and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, at least with, with writing poetry, that's one of the nice things about it is you can kind of capture things in real time and capture your state of mind and your thoughts just as they flow out. Do you feel like you're kind of, so for something like that, I mean, it made me kind of tear up a little bit, I think, just like 
I don't know, it brings you back or like the reader back to a place where, you know, I might have felt that way or especially over the last couple of years, you know, just in isolation or everything that's Mm -hmm. going on in the world, like in the news and everything or just like in personal life, everyday life. Um, Did you like when you're writing something like that, do you feel like it kind of just like flows? It's like a conscious flow of just how you're feeling in that moment or is it kind of hard to write something like that? Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think in a way it's, it's both like allowing that conscious flow can be Mm -hmm. hard sometimes. Um, It can be hard to just allow yourself to be like very honest with yourself as a writer sometimes and, and acknowledge what you're thinking and feeling in a way that's that direct. Um, And so I think sometimes you have to just sort of write it and and let yourself go there and not think about what other people are going to think or what are you going to do with this. And again, that's one of the things that's kind of nice about a poem because it, since it is less of a time commitment to write up front, I feel like I can I can write a poem and most of the poems I write are just for myself. Like I don't really do anything with them. Um, and I don't have to feel bad about that. Like yeah. I wasted months or years of my life writing something and what am I going to do with it, you know? So if I take, you know, an hour and, and write something and I feel like I got something out of it emotionally and also just like kind of a creative exercise as a writer, then to me that was time well spent. Um, but sometimes when I think you have to think more about audience when you're writing a longer work that you're potentially going to try to, to publish. Um, well, I, but it's nice I, to I have feel like, uh, I mean, first of all, thanks for sharing that because I think it, uh, it, it's brave to show your vulnerability in something mm-hmm. like that, you know, to show you. your emotions at that point in time. Do you ever think about that when you write something as, uh, you know, as emotionally gripping as that, uh, you know, are people going to worry about me? Are they going to think I'm okay? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I do think about that. And I think that that's a bigger struggle too for writers is like, not wanting to be judged by your writing because even if you're I mean I've never written anything that's completely autobiographical even in poetry a lot of times I kind of create characters or other voices it's not necessarily me in my life at least not in the entirety of who I am um, but I think people have a tendency to assume that like oh this is about you on some level <laughs> whether or not it is um, and that's something that I'm, I'm always working at as a writer is just letting go of that fear. And I, I think you have to be willing to just go there and say what you want to say and be authentic and be vulnerable and not worry so much about what people are going to think about you. Um, cause that's when you get to the stuff that's really going to hit home with other people. They can kind of sense when something is coming from a place of truth. Um, and so that's, that's always a struggle for me as a writer is trying to like get to the personal stuff and not be afraid of that. But you know, life's too short to hold back. Very therapeutic. Yeah, well, you know, the, yeah exactly. Yeah, well, you know, the yeah. life of a writer, you got your ups and your downs and that kind of thing. And, and I just wonder whether, Sarah, you, you've got some really cool things going on in your writing life now with this script and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. You just heard from the studio. Could you have written a poem like this uh, today after getting that kind of news that, you know, they're, this is going into, or does it take being in that space to actually write something like this? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it certainly helps to be in the right headspace. Um, but sometimes also just like if you started something or you've started to put down those ideas when you're in a certain place, then I think just by coming back to them, you can help to sort of remind yourself of what that feels like. And so you can, you can conjure it again in a way if you need to. Um, also setting for me like I feel like I write differently if I'm writing in the morning versus at night <laughs> like when I'm writing in the morning I'm, I'm a little bit more productive and I'm more able to kind of focus and just get through the work and 
get things done. But if I'm writing at night, I tend to write more like weird emotional <laughs> things. So that that might be when I'm more likely to write, you know, kind of experimental fiction or, or poems or things like that. Um, whereas if I've got a project that I'm on a deadline for, like I need to start in the morning mm-hmm. and just like get the work out. Um, so yeah, I guess everyone's process is different in that sense. Well, I really loved your line, um, a loan, a space, and a zero. Where the hell are you going with that? I'm thinking, that is a pretty lonely space to be in the middle of a zero. Yeah, you know? it's true. <laughs> uh, that line jumped yeah. out at me, which is one thing about poetry, even sometimes when I don't understand the poem, there's always a couple lines you see that you go, wow, that's yeah, really good. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love it when there's like a... An, an image or a line or something that really just sticks with you from a poem. Um, and sometimes you don't understand everything. You know, I, I've had poems that I'll read through multiple times and there, there are parts or lines where I'm like, I still have no idea what they're really trying to say right there. <laughs> but if there's enough that really jumps out at me and the language is really beautiful and inventive or there's some kind of meaning I can take away from it, like I, I'm okay with there being a little bit of an enigma you know, to different parts of the poem. I don't need to totally get it, but well, maybe like that's why I, I was told by a poet one time I shouldn't be asking the poets on the podcast uh, what their poem meant because they don't know mm-hmm. what their poem means. <laughs> it just kind of came. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like asking, it's, it's you know, why, you why is a joke funny? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, saraharcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. Hey, listeners, uh, welcome back uh, to Act 3 of this episode. Uh, We haven't been putting this off, even though the topic might suggest that. What's the topic, Sarah? Um, Well, we have a very fun discussion right now, very relatable for, I think, all writers about writer procrastination. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about Leonis' recent Waitscripts blog blog post, um, which is called Procrastination, a Novelist, Friend or Foe. And we've also got some great listener feedback about how they procrastinate. So this is going to be fun. Yeah, and so this um, this blog post appears on uh, my Wade Scripps blog, which is part of the uh, LandisWade.com website. Um, it's uh, this is kind of the, what I say in the opening is uh, you may have heard this writing advice: write every day, even if it's just a paragraph. Exercise your writing muscles. Get in the habit. Stay in the habit. Uh, but what if this writing advice, I say, like Julia Cameron's advice for morning pages, is just not for you? What if for some inexplicable reason you become a novelist who procrastinates? What then? Should you be ashamed of yourself? <laughs> should you chide yourself for your lack of discipline? Or should you embrace procrastination, find the humor in it, and see where the devil takes you? So that's kind of my lead you know, to this topic today. Uh, has the devil ever, ever even taken any of you toward procrastination oh, yeah. before? Every day. <laughs> I, I think I'm a professional procrastinator at this point. It's like part of my person. <laughs> it's, yes, it's part of I'm your skill set. I'm very good at it. Yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, it's exciting sometimes. <laughs> 
Yeah. And what I did in this um, blog post, among other things, is I, I talked first about finding humor in procrastination, um, uh, starting out by telling a story about my late grandfather, Jake Wade. So we got a little piece here um, about finding humor and procrastination we're going to play first, uh, and then we will come back and uh, talk some more about it. There is humor in procrastination. My late grandfather, Jake Wade, was a sports writer and editor of the Charlotte Observer in the 1930s and 1940s, and later sports information director at UNC Chapel Hill. He had a popular column in the Charlotte Observer called Jake Wade's Sports Parade. We wrote about sports, but more so about the humanity of the games. A member of the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame and the namesake of the prestigious Jake Wade Award, given each year by the College Sports Information Directors of America, he made writing look effortless, and he had a sense of humor, too. Uh, this excerpt I'm going to read is from a piece he wrote for the Charlotte Observer in 1937 titled, Writing a Column. It's about nothing at all, really, or rather... It's a humorous look about what happens to a writer when procrastination proves to be a worthy adversary. Here's what he wrote. You roll a long sheet of white paper in your typewriter and type in the upper left-hand corner. Sports. Sports parade. Two-column, ten-point, proof to wade. Very neatly. Then you wipe the perspiration off your face and look out the window. You see a taxi man tinkering with his cab and you believe... You recognize him as the fellow who drove you home the other night and told you a wild tale. You get up from your desk and walk into the city room and talk to Leggett Blythe a few minutes about the result of the liquor control store election. You come back to your desk and you sit down and gaze at the long white sheet of paper in your typewriter with the words in the upper left-hand corner, and then you wipe the perspiration off your face again. You swing around on your desk and run through the mail again, and you reread the letter from Johnny Mackerel inviting you to the annual flycasting tournament and Trout Derby at Banner Elk, where you also have a good laugh about a story he told you of a fisherman who slipped and fell in the pool. Then you put in a brand new sheet. Suddenly, you decide you want a Coke, and you send down for one. Then you wipe the perspiration from your face again, and you get up and go to the city room, where you rib the news editor about Dizzy Dean and his latest troubles. You come back to your office and get your Coke, and when you finish it, you slap your hands together and whirl back to your desk, and turn to your typewriter ready to go to work. You don't like the sheet of paper in the typewriter, and you pull it out and ball it up and toss it in the wastebasket. This routine continues with very self-imposed interruptions and no progress, and we pick up with the text again here. You get your hat and coat to leave. You take another look at the typewriter and the paper that is in it. I'll be back and write that darn thing later, you tell your associates. Three hours later, you return and you find the long, white sheet of paper still in the trusty typewriter. A few spaces below, which you put in the upper left-hand corner, and just as neatly, it says, You're doing fine. Keep at it, bud. You can make it. And you know that Fitz Little John has been by. Okay, so um, if anybody left your, if you left your writing space uh, and came back and somebody had been spying on you, might they find a blank sheet of paper uh, or a blank screen that uh, hadn't been touched? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that story. Um, and I loved, like, the sort of physical nature of his procrastination in a way, yeah. like with the sheet of paper that he kept taking out and putting it back in. I think we all have, like, these little fidgety <laughs> habits that we do when we're, you know, we should be doing something, but we can't get our minds to kind of 
focus on it so we do like little weird physical things instead yes yes i've walked into my office before and walked right out <laughs> it's like snow yeah. <laughs> not ready <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i get it well so the genesis for this uh blog post we're we're, we're each doing blog posts uh once a month and then we either put them on or we talk about them we put them on the on the blog and or on our blog post sites and uh you know, but this one I was thinking, um, you know, I'd written this novel. I promised people I was going to write a series, but I really hadn't gotten started uh, well on it at all after about four or five months because lots of other stuff's going on, right? We're doing a podcast. I've got some other ideas, some other projects, and I'm starting to feel guilty a little bit about not working on the next book, right? Because people have asked me, when's the next, bo- next mm-hmm. book coming out? You know, mm-hmm. Which is great. I mean, I love that, that they're saying, when's the next book coming out? <laughs> but you just, oh, I'll write it on Friday. <laughs> It'll be out on Monday. You know, So, you know, you're thinking about that and you're thinking about that. So I'm thinking, well, is it a good thing or a bad thing uh, to procrastinate? Before we get into that, I, I just wanted to say, and I, I speak to this a little bit in the blog post, that procrastination is kind of like a villain in a novel, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, a good villain needs to get in the hero's mm-hmm. way, right? Put up obstacles that, like, you know, Hannah walked into her office and then she turned around <laughs> and walked back out. Well, the villain Possessed. was, you know, probably in her office, you know. Um, but, you know, um, procrastination has got a great way of offering you other things to do. I mean, I've got a lot of things planned, you know, <laughs> going on some trips, yeah, okay. going to see my grandson. Uh, hey, I know I'm going to do some more marketing on the book. Oh, I know I'm going to go do some work on the podcast. Oh, I know I'm going to work on this nonfiction book. Oh, I know I'm going to do something, you know. So what do y'all think? Is procrastination a living, uh, you know, being an evildoer out there that uh, interferes with authors? I don't think it's evil necessarily. I think maybe I have a close relationship (laughs) with it. (laughs) It's one of my closer friends. I don't know. I mean, I think it's just part, probably part of it's a personality thing too. Whereas like, if you're a person that really enjoys working under pressure and you like fast paced things, like I really do enjoy that. I, I love, I love when I don't have time to think about stuff for work like I just kind of Mm. I don't know it's like my brain's just moving like that so sometimes and depending on the workload or whatever I'm working on or let's just say it's the blog or something like that it's like sometimes I just push it like non-intentionally either um and then I just get to that point where I'm Mm. like oh I've got to do this and then I just shell it out and I'm like that was pretty fun to do that and I feel like Hmm. inspired right now to do more of something different but you know something like that so it's probably a perspective thing and maybe partly like how your personality works but I do think there's certain circumstances or situations whether it be like a deadline that's coming up that you really shouldn't have waited this long to do something you know things Mm. like that it can be um, more of that evildoer that's just kind of like, you know, I'm going to ruin everything for you right now. Yeah, Sarah, do you feel guilty about it? Oh, yeah, I always feel guilty about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I do think that it's it's not entirely a bad thing. I mean, on the one hand, like, my house is very clean. (laughs) I I stay on top of my emails. Like, I get a lot of other stuff done. Um, But also, I, I think there's something to be said for like giving yourself some space with writing with writing like you mm-hmm. sometimes you need that space for your mind to kind of work on something on a subconscious level while you're not actively thinking about it um and if you find that you're you're trying to write a project and it just feels like you're pushing a rock uphill and you are dreading it and you don't want to sit down and write it like maybe that means you need to kind of think about mm-hmm. it in a different way or think about it a little bit more first like a lot of times I get my best writing ideas when I'm not actively sitting down and writing it's when I'm 
you know, doing the dishes mm-hmm. or taking a yeah. shower or walking the dog or just giving my right. brain like space to wander a little bit. So sometimes I think procrastination is good for that. You need, you need a little bit of time. Yeah. And I cover um, both sides of the fence and the, in the blog post when I ask the question, is it friend or foe? And uh, the answer I give is what I say is an answer a lawyer typically gives mm-hmm. is it depends, you know? And uh, I think what I say is procrastination is friendly enough uh, to cause you to, as a writer, to explore new mm-hmm. projects, catch up with old friends, travel to new places, do the mundane tasks that you ignored, uh, like mm-hmm. keeping your house clean, <laughs> right, Sarah? Um, and to laugh at the predicament you find yourself in when you run out of excuses, you know? Uh, and also to give you that space sort of to, um, you know, sometimes you need space between what you're working on or what you're thinking about working on before it really kicks in and can gel and you can sit down and start putting Mm -hmm. words on the page. But I also say procrastination, uh, big P procrastination, if you consider it to be a living being, it's full enough uh, to stare at the writer after all the rationalizations have run dry and say, snap (laughs) out of it, dude. You haven't looked right, you know? (laughs) So, it, you know, I think it works It works both ways. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things, uh, there are there are big ways to procrastinate and mm-hmm. little ways to procrastinate, right? I mean, uh, I talked about other mm-hmm. projects, right, and reading books and doing things and bigger things. But what about all the little things? I mean, like uh, checking email, you know, social mm-hmm. media, you know. I think a lot of that kind of stuff gets in the way of writing too. Yeah, and I think one of the things too about being a writer is that it's so much more than actually writing, at least if you're trying to do it on a professional level. There are so many other things that you're doing, whether it's, you know, something like this podcast or you might maintain some kind of presence on social media, a newsletter, a website, you're doing events, you're networking with other writers. Um, So there's always more stuff that you can do that is related to your writing and that is productive in one way or another, but that's not actually writing. So it's really easy to to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm doing the things that I should be doing and I'm doing my work, but you're not actually getting any writing done. So I think it's just about finding that balance where you, you do all the other stuff because it is important, but you still make time for the creative process itself. Yeah. And I think um, all writers, uh, well, I can't speak for all writers, but for me personally, I think having a sense of accomplishment at times helps me move forward with, you know, different projects. So a lot of times you can get a sense of accomplishment by mm-hmm. cutting the front yard or by <laughs> cleaning your home office or by doing a social media post that you've been meaning to do and you're checking off things on that, you know, to-do list. Uh, and then you can, oh, I'm going to sit back down and not in my typewriter and roll my <laughs> sheet in like my grandfather did, but I'm going to sit back down on my computer and open up my Word program and, and start to write. I don't know. What do you think? A sense of accomplishment sometimes uh, actually helps you move forward on projects uh, and it doesn't have to be on that particular project itself to get your mind in the right space. I think, I think somewhat that's true for me. And maybe this is just like a weird complex I have. I basically, if I'm doing anything other than writing, I feel a little bit guilty that I'm not writing. <laughs> <laughs> so even if I'm like, I'm very good at using other productive things to procrastinate and the stuff that I, I know that I need to get done. But there's this little voice in the back of my head that's like, you should be getting more writing done today. <laughs> <laughs> it, it probably would have been a lot more kind of sad <laughs> maybe, sad maybe your, next, your next poem could be about procrastination yes. <laughs> someday someday i'm gonna procrastinate <laughs> there you go uh well we got some uh listener 
uh, feedback too on this topic. So yeah, we got some. And, uh, yeah, let's talk about some, some great of that. Um, yeah. notes from some of our listeners. Um, Christine Arvidsson said, uh, "The older I get, the more I can be a creative procrastinator. Sometimes, though, sometimes the procrastination is just the ticket, providing that space for your head to solve writing problems without you even knowing it. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it." <laughs> I think she's there right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the story we were telling a little bit about. You know, um, getting that space uh, so your creative juices. Yeah, can get exactly. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's a, a pretty common tool, actually, or our experience. Um, Brian Mitchell, who contributed his um, his book pitch to us, which was great. He also mentioned um, his biggest procrastination procrastination crutch is the internet. <laughs> I'll sit down with the intention to write, but trick myself into thinking I'm not ready to start or decide to do research. Eventually, I'll find hours later that I did no writing, but managed to explore sports, news, opinion, and a large number of sites that had nothing to do with my current story. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fairly common. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I have heard about writers using research uh, as a way to mm-hmm. procrastinate mm-hmm. from writing the story. But after a while, you know, you've done enough research, you should start you know, getting the yeah, narrative. Yeah, you can research right. forever. You know, you're never going to run out of stuff to, to read or look at. Um, yeah. Let's see. Uh, Scott Swoop says, I find that when I want to procrastinate that I will perfect my outline. I have a bad habit of getting so caught up in the blueprint that I'll never actually build the house, so to speak. Um, so that's interesting. <laughs> I, you know, some writers just jump in and kind of start writing without an outline and others are definitely like planners mm-hmm. and outline and and kind of work stuff out in advance. Um, and I'm on the kind of outlining planning side of things. So I, I can, I can understand that because it is a little bit intimidating to get into the, to go from making notes to actually writing like the draft itself, you know? Um, so it can mm-hmm. be easy to just keep working on those notes or keep working on that outline and not actually write the thing itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then, you know, just to, that idea of uh, outlining, you know, like research, uh, keeping you away from the narrative itself. The story's mm-hmm. not going to write itself, you know. You're going to have to jump in or the poem or whatever it is you're doing that you're researching or outlining. Um, and uh, so I think, uh, but at the same time, I think it feeds this notion that um, on the one hand, it might be kind of procrastination, but on the other hand, you're getting your mind ready to do kind of what needs to be done. So Sarah, I know mm-hmm. you said you feel guilty sometimes when you're not writing, but at the same time, your mind's it's working, true. right? I mean, your creative mind's working no matter what you're Yeah, you're always you're getting doing. closer to that point where you're you're ready to write. So I think that's good to keep in mind. Um, and we do have one more piece of listener feedback as well about procrastination. Um, Abigail Summers says, the imaginary wall that seems to stand between my work and me is that simple word procrastination. It is so easily tempting to find other things to do other than focus on finishing my novel. My projects usually start off like this. Have an idea, so excited, ready to write, can't write fast enough. (laughs) Then once I'm in about 30,000 words, my momentum slows. I start to second guess myself. What if this isn't good enough? I've already invested so much time. Then lying in bed, an idea sparks in my head. No time for sleep. It's time to write. Then I'm off to the races again. That mm. is until I get in 30,000 more words. <laughs> oh, man. How is this going to end? So many possibilities. One wrong turn and my story may fall flat. Wiping my forehead, I push through. Self-doubt be gone. I take a walk, a break, maybe too long of a break. I read and read and read. Then finally, the movie in my head calls me back to the computer. It is like a dance. There is a beginning, middle, and an end. But each move is never the same, and the rhythm changes with each project that I tackle. But eventually, the song ends, and I look out upon the audience and wait, hoping to hear applause. 
the louder the better. But if not, the best part in being a writer is knowing there will always be another dance. Um, I like her little metaphor yeah, there. Yeah, that and was I think really that's, good. Yeah, yeah that's a, she, she raised a good point that sometimes you can use writing one project to procrastinate writing another project. <laughs> <laughs> you start something and you get stuck and then there's like the shiny new idea that you mm -hmm. want to just dive into instead. Um, but eventually you're probably going to get stuck at some point in any project. So. And I noticed one thing. Um, of course, you got to be careful to be around her when she gets to 30,000 words. Cause the dangerous time. <laughs> dangerous time for her. But, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, you start to second-guess yourself or criticize, is this good enough, whatever, uh, that is, I think, mm -hmm. a time to step away a little bit um, and do something else that energizes you mm -hmm. and then come back. Because those are those are thoughts that don't need to be infecting your brain, you know, while you're while you're being creative. And the fact is, as from her own process here, uh, it, it restarts itself, you know, and she's, she's back into it, uh, sometimes in the middle of the night. And then she says, she says off to the races again. Um, yeah, no, I love that. Uh, thanks. Thank all of our, uh, listeners here who provided feedback to us, uh, for this procrastination episode. And for those of you who did not, because you were just <laughs> taking too long to do it, it was on your to-do list. You were going to do it. But you just never got around to it. Well, you can uh, feel guilty about that. No, Shame sure. on you. <laughs> Think about what you've done. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and uh, for full uh, transcript of this, you can go to my website, landisway.com, and go to the Wait Scripts uh, blog there, and you'll see this along with a little segment I read uh, uh, about my grandfather's experience. And, uh, yeah, so use procrastination to your advantage. Um when you can always if you're going to procrastinate at least find something else fun mm -hmm, to do in mm -hmm. the meantime right or something that yeah. you can check off a list combat yeah. it. Good that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly um, all right for all things charlotte readers podcast check out charlottereaderspodcast.com you can find a list of all episodes an alphabetical guest list with links detailed show notes for each episode a community blog and more we'd love to have you visit All right, uh, we're still in, what are we in, Act 3? Yeah, Act 3. So uh, we've got uh, a featured author now, uh, Sheila Myers, and her book is The Truth of Who You Are. Uh, a little bit quickly about Sheila. She's uh, an award-winning author and college professor in upstate New York. Uh, her penchant for research and meandering, she says, through the wilderness, lakes, mountains, and vistas, and the occasional trip to a cemetery, I don't know what that's about, in the U.S. and abroad, inspire her novels and short stories. Oh, okay, it's inspiration. That's good. Uh, she's won some awards for her writing. Uh, her essays have been published in various magazines. Uh, shorts have appeared in various magazines. She's, uh, fe she was a featured guest on the History Channel's Engineering That Built the World, October 2021, based on her Durant Family Saga trilogy. Uh, she has been a guest on the History Author Show podcast, the Women Fiction Writers Webinar, uh, and Query Trenches Instagram Conversations. And now, finally... She's worked up to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> here we are. She's, we're really excited to have her uh, here on Charlotte's podcast. And uh, she's got this novel um, that she wrote, that uh, Truth of Who You Are. It's set in, uh, well, it's during the Great Depression. It uh, involves the U.S. Civilian Conservation Corps. It's set, nice setting, uh, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Uh, there's a tragic accident, uh, creates a dilemma. Uh, it's kind of a, character-driven novel, and uh, it's gotten some good 
praise. Uh, Gail Umstead, author of Landscape of a Marriage, says, beautifully written with careful attention to historical detail. This book is one I highly recommend, and I enjoyed reading it uh, as well. And I asked, uh, asked Sheila what her inspiration was uh, for the book, and uh, here's what she had to say. So the inspiration for this book, there was a, a couple things. One, uh, I teach environmental sciences in the environmental sciences, and I've always been intrigued by the U.S. Civilian Conservation Corps and their work. Uh, I know I've planted hundreds of trees with my students, and the Civilian Conservation Corps during the Great Depression planted over a billion trees in the U.S. state and national forests. And I really wanted to write a book that portrayed these men and their work, and I wanted it in a setting that I thought was interesting, uh, mountainous, and the Smoky Mountains really called to me. My parents lived in that region for years, and I was visiting quite often and just became intrigued by the history of the Smoky Mountains National Park, especially because uh, there's a cultural heritage site there, Cadiz Cove, and the um, buildings are still there, the outhouses, the hen coops, everything's still there that you know people can visit and see the way people lived in the park before it became a national park. And they were basically kicked out by the government. Um, you know, their house, they, they, they sold off their land or were forced off by eminent domain. So I just thought it was a really interesting area, place for to, to have a book set. And there was over 25 camps in that park of Civilian Conservation Corps. The men did a lot of work there because the lumber companies had come in and cut most of the forests, especially all of the old growth were gone. And the hemlock trees were suffering from blight. So the men from the Conservation Corps that were hired during the Great Depression replanted thousands of trees and they built a lot of the infrastructure, including the um, New Gap Found Road, the road that cuts through the park. They built that and a lot of the buildings, um, the campsites were built by these men. And uh, I was able to find a lot of information about them at the local museums and heritage sites around the park. There's some great oral histories, some biographies, um, some biographies um, from the men that worked for the Corps, but as well as the people that lived there and the way of life that they had, which I, you know, it was very self-sufficient. These people um, lived a pretty good life and it was a very interesting time period for the park. So that was my reasoning for setting it there and for writing this book. Yeah. And, and that's interesting. The, the, the setting, um, Great Smoky Mountains National Park that, like a lot of uh, issues over time uh, with moving people off their land, um, the government came in and condemned a lot of that land to create that national park, and people who had homesteaded there and been there for years were forced mm -hmm. off their land. So in interesting setting for that. Uh, and because this book is um, kind of a coming-of-age story, I asked Sheila uh, to share a little bit about uh, that part of her writing. It wasn't too hard for me to do a coming-of-age story because I've written others. I, I've written a book called Ephemeral Summer. It was a female protagonist uh, set in the Finger Lakes, and that was, a, again, a coming-of-age story. I've worked around college students for the over a decade and younger people before that, so I'm used to working around youth. I have children of my own, and I just um, can get into their mindset. Uh, also, reading books um, you know, uh, with young protagonists helps. Yeah, and 
And you got kind of a coming of age story here about to have a baby, right? So, I should write my yeah. own novel yeah. about that. Coming, exactly, coming of age yeah. uh, one day soon. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, before we uh, finish up with her, we got a little reading uh, from her and uh, one more question. But let's listen, listen to a little segment of Sheila's book uh, here with uh, In Her Own Voice. The scene I'm going to read to you today, it's um, just, it's really the first chapter. And Ben Taylor is the narrator and he's talking about going on a hike with his father in what is the Smoky Mountains National Park now, but this is 1926. I grew up in the Smoky Mountains where distances are measured in hours instead of miles. My father could point out the nearest cabin just by scanning the horizon, seeking a tendril of chimney smoke, snaking its way past the tree line. His family owned Taylor Valley and an extended family of sisters and cousins all made it their home. As a result, I was never more than a day's hike from a family relation. His sense of geography was uncanny. He would hike up the side of a mountain and when he came, we came to a clearing, he'd point in any direction and tell me what lay in that direction. See over there, Ben, he'd say, that's the state of North Carolina. I'd focus where he was pointing and see nothing but waves of green forest capped with blue haze. How do you know it's not still Tennessee? Son, you live in these mountains and you just know where one thing ends and the other begins. Every spring, Pa took a trip to check on his ginseng plants in a grove of old trees high above a ravine. The year I turned 13, I went with him. We left while the moon and stars were dim memories in the brief time between night and dawn, the wind talking to the trees, the mountains, phantoms in the mist. We took Cherokee trails that plunged into the thick woods following the path of least resistance, razor backing along precipices that brought my stomach to my throat whenever I glanced down. I thought hiking would tire him out, but he never wavered during the trip. He kept up his banter as he loped along, informing me about the history of the tailors and their adventures. Pa was good at storytelling because he had learned the only way to maintain a position in a family so large was to entertain people. So one of the things I liked about this um the reading here is that uh, there's all different kind of ways to describe setting, right? And you, you can actually be omniscient and sort of describe the setting. One of the little things she did here was um, she did it through dialogue. You know, she had the father talking to the son about mm-hmm. uh, what what's out there. You mm-hmm. know, tell me tell me about what's over there. You know, kind of thing. It's just a great way to bring a little bit of the history. Yeah, and you can kind of story, bring right? character in at the same time when you do it that way, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like having, you know, it's when you have dialogue going on, but you have something else that's, there's two purposes to it. The dialogue is one thing, mm-hmm. but then you're also accomplishing another goal. It's uh, at the same time um, and doing two things at once, which is which is nice because it adds a little flavor to to the writing. Uh, and on the on the idea of uh, writing and that kind of thing, I. I threw at her the question I've thrown at many authors over the course of the podcast. Uh, you could tell your younger writing self something of value about writing based upon what you've learned since then uh, as a writer that uh, had you known it when you got started, it might have helped that young writer. What would it be? As an author, I have found that you just grow. The more you write, the better you get. And uh, 
I feel that if I were to say anything to my younger self as an author, it would be to just have patience with yourself and realize that you might not be perfect. Things aren't always perfect, but if you have a good idea and you have inspiration and a passion for writing, then just go for it. There's really nothing to stop you. And I do believe the publishing world's a little brutal, but at the same time, it can be so uplifting to put a story out there and and get feedback from people that they enjoyed it. And so my encouragement to everybody is, again, have patience with yourself, take the time to write a good story and you'll grow. The more you write, the better you'll get. And I've learned that for sure over time. Thanks for having me. It was really fun to talk to you. So what do you, th- I think that's yeah. great advice. Yeah. It's it. Have patience with yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I think that's kind of like, it actually ties in a little bit with the procrastination conversation too, where you're just like, you know, give yourself some space, be patient. You don't have to get everything right the first shot. Um, if you need to go take a walk or do something else to kind of let your creativity flow and get the story where you want it to be, that's totally fine. Cause I think something that a lot of writers and just, I mean, working with a ton of different style writers over the years, that's one thing that you hear all the time is like, I keep putting all this pressure on myself to, do X, Y, Z or get the story here, like get this character to do this and stuff like that. And it's, it's kind of just like take the pressure off and just let yourself be Mm -hmm. in the flow of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, writing, whether it's an individual project or building a career, it's such a process and you do have to kind of take the time that it takes. Even you hear about writers who seem like an overnight success, but usually that success is just where you found out about them. They were working for years right. before that. So <laughs> yeah, I think being patient with yourself is important. That does tie in well to uh, the procrastination discussion because on the one hand, while we're saying we're not doing this particular project and we're feeling guilty about it, right, Sarah? The idea though is mm-hmm. be patient with yourself too. You know, don't be your own critic about everything. Mm-hmm. It's hard. But as she said, the publishing world is brutal. At least, you know, have a, have a good experience with it. And I was doing that to myself a little bit recently with all the things that I have on my list that I need to do and want to do um, and feeling a little bit guilty about not really digging into this next book in my indie retirement series. And I'm thinking, well, just, okay, drop back, give yourself a little patience, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm actually saying out loud now, because if I say this out loud, uh, I'm going to have to do it. So I'm saying out loud that I'm actually going to be working on a nonfiction uh, book that where I'm pulling quotes from the 450 author episodes I did, and we're going to turn it into a quote book uh, that'll come out next year. And uh, I've committed to kind of go through those, uh, listen to them, pull out, uh, you know, uh, some choice uh, tidbits of uh, wisdom, knowledge, uh, vulnerability, thoughts, and and group them into different categories and uh, just put them out there and hope people enjoy that. So I'm super excited for that. I love that. Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah, you know, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, I've already, um, it, it's just fun going back because my memory's not that good. I cannot remember everything I heard in 450 episodes, both <laughs> on our Patreon channel and our regular podcast. And and you go back and you listen. And I said to myself, well, that's why I've got to do this. I've got to write this down, pull these quotes out, uh, because it's it, it'll be a good blueprint. If nobody else reads it, it'll be a good bl- blueprint for me to go back and look at just to remember the kind of inspiration and thoughts that I got that helped right. me write my own novel, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's, it'll be fun. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I was just, I'm thinking, uh, in the writing life section, Craig Nova said, uh, 
you know, as far as the writing life goes, you know, when it's when it's great, it's great, and when it's bad, it's the worst. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of something <laughs> like, like that. You know, and uh, I think uh, Martin Settle said you, you had to you have to throw in a little humor in everything you do, and if you do it mm-hmm. well, you know, you'll throw the reader off enough that they might just read a little bit more. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea with the rom. With I'm the sure rom-com. you've gotten so many things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, her advice is good uh, on patience. Um, great to have that, and, and thanks Sheila for participating. Um, we are going to be uh, heading to Act Four in just a moment with our last featured author, um, which uh, is Benjamin Gilmer. We'll be right back in uh, in just a moment. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's Podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, we're back with uh, Act 4. We've got a featured author here that uh, Hannah and Sarah interviewed, and uh, I'm going to let them uh, introduce uh, this interview. So, uh, Hannah. Yeah, this was super fun for us to tag team. I know we both really enjoyed this book by uh, Dr. Benjamin Gilmer. Um, It's called The Other Dr. Gilmer, Two Men, a Murder, and an Unlikely Fight for Justice. Um, And it's kind of a true crime slash memoir book. It was really good. Um, And Dr. Benjamin Gilmer is a family medicine uh, physician in Fletcher, North Carolina, a former Albert Schweitzer Fellow. He's an associate professor at the Department of Family Medicine at the UNC School of Medicine in Chapel Hill and the Mountain Area Health Education Center. A former neurobiologist turned rural family practitioner, Dr. Gilmer has lectured across the country about medical ethics, bias in medicine, and criminal justice reform. He lives with his wife and two children in Asheville, North Carolina. He is a busy guy. (laughs) It's like, I feel like from the book, you realize how much, you know, he puts so much into all these different areas of his life. It's really kind of a fascinating thing. Yeah, I was reading the book. I was like, how does he have time yeah. to do all of this? And how did he have time to write this book? Well, <laughs> with you and I, me, so me and Sarah both are married to two guys who are also practicing in the medical field. And I think, I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but for me the whole time, I'm like, gosh, I can't even imagine if uh, my husband was doing all of this <laughs> in the criminal yeah, justice system. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, it was really inspiring, honestly, on a lot of levels. Um, and the book starts when he's fresh out of his residency. Um, he's just joined a rural North Carolina clinic. Um, it takes place kind of near Asheville. And he finds out when he starts at the clinic that the previous doctor shared his last name. Um, that was Dr. Vince Gilmer, who was a loved and, and respected doctor by the community, right up until he strangled his ailing father and then returned to the clinic for a regular week of work. Vince's eventual arrest for murder shocked his patients. Um, How could their beloved doctor be capable of such violence? But then the deeper that Benjamin looked into Vince's case, the more he became obsessed with discovering what pushed a good man toward darkness. And um, as he started investigating this case and kind of trying to figure out what had happened with Vince and the you know, the health and the mental health issues at play there, um, he ended up working with uh, This American Life, which is a great radio show if you haven't heard it and they did an episode about this case that I think went on to become one of their most popular and most listened to episodes of all time Um, and it kind of turns into an investigation of like the criminal justice system and how mental health impacts incarceration and it's it's a really really interesting book with um, really sort of wide-reaching implications for society I think Um, his powerful story asks us to answer the question in a country with the highest incarceration rates in the world what would it look like if we prioritized healing rather than punishment Um, 
And Atul Gawande, who's the number one New York Times bestselling author of Being Mortal, Medicine, and What Matters in the End, um, called it a remarkable true-life medical detective story come memoir, grippingly told. I was drawn in by every part of it, the bizarre murder, the mystery of what really happened, Dr. Benjamin Gilmer's gumshoe work <clears throat> to get to the bottom of that mystery, and all of that followed what, when he did. Um, so it's a really compelling story, and we, as of recording this, have not actually interviewed him yet, <laughs> but we're going to drop in our interview here, and we're super excited to talk to him. Yeah, it was really good, even though you haven't done it yet, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say that it was phenomenal. I, I feel like I know it. <laughs> you got, I mean, the New York, I, I, yeah, the, me too. You both, you've both read the books. The New York Times Book Review calls it mesmerizing, enriching, maddening, compelling book. Uh, Charles Frazier. Uh, New York Times bestselling author Verena and Cold Mountain, complex, unlikely medical mystery and true crime story, along with one man's relentless quest mm-hmm. for justice. So, you know, just don't botch the interview, folks. You know, yeah. you yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's also yeah. in development for a yes, movie, I too. Saw that. So uh-huh. we'll be seeing yeah. it in many formats, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, let's listen to the interview. So, Dr. Gilmer, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. We really appreciate having you. And um, as we were talking about, we both just love this book so much, and we're super excited to bring it to readers. It's a very important story. Um, so we want to, to dive in to the questions. And to start out, um, how has this experience that you've been through changed how you practice medicine? Well, it's kept me honest, I think, as a, as a physician in terms of reminding me what's, what's important, you know, like practicing medicine with purpose and intention. And, um, you know, it's made me focus on, on being true to what, why I went into medicine in the very beginning and why, why we as a, as a, you know, collection of physicians and family medicine, like we, we sort of see our role as advocates, like we're, um, we are specializing (laughs) in human relationships and advocating for our patients. That's kind of our niche in many ways. And so, it's it's kept me true to that to that mission, and it's you know over the last ten years I've had to to really practice that and and challenge myself to remain committed, um, and you know that larger commitment that we're trying to do on a on more of a political scale it it directly relates to every patient the way we interact with each patient and and how we have to advocate for for every every single one. So yeah, it's it's been a big teachable moment for me to. Mm-hmm. continually reinforce the importance of what what Schweitzer calls like reverence for life and that and mm-hmm. that means being present and advocating for all of your your patients which is the the crux of, of medicine mm-hmm. I think yeah absolutely and I think um, a term that stood out to me a lot while reading the book and just in general right now is generational trauma so obviously that's something that mm-hmm. Vince dealt with on a very deep level um, and so for you talking with him and learning more about what that means and all of that kind of thing does that impact your current relationships at the hospital or you know with your patients and just different people you work with on a professional level in medicine well gosh I mean like for me like I I really didn't experience trauma growing right. up. I mean, I, I'm like a privileged, you know, white guy who, who grew up in, you know, South Charlotte. <laughs> in part. And so, I, yeah, I, I didn't have the experience of trauma. I didn't know what trauma was. You know, I, I went to Davidson College and hadn't experienced uh-huh. trauma outside of the divorce of my, my parents. But so Vince taught me so much about the not only like the intergenerational mm-hmm. aspects of trauma, but the like the depth of, of trauma. Mm-hmm. And his his family has been traumatized on every single level. And so I, you know, just to be witness 
to that, to see that degree of trauma for the first time was, you know, mind blowing. And it's, it's hard not to, you know, to internalize some of those things after getting to know him so well over the last 10 years. Um, yeah, it's, it's been kind of a wake up exposure to, to what trauma is and, and the, how, how potent it can be to one person and, and to multiple generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like something where unless you are really faced with it in that direct way, maybe you, you don't even realize it or recognize it in other people because, you know, a lot of us are in that privileged position where we haven't experienced these things personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can imagine that's, that's made it easier to maybe um, see that and, and have that compassion for your other patients too. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's seeing that trauma has been like a huge motivational force mm-hmm. to, you know, to continue the advocacy for him and, and for others. But, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's an, it's maddening and inspiring when you, when you see that level of trauma and, you know, the trauma goes from Vince to his family, mm-hmm. to his, his predecessors, to his, his, his niece. Um, mm-hmm. But then it extends like to the whole political system and to the mass incarceration. So that the trauma just keeps ex- expanding out and that, um, you know, being, being witness to that and, and sort of seeing that in, in a different light for the first time. I think saying is, is really traumatic. Right. <laughs> Calling it maddening and inspiring, I think, are two really mm-hmm. great ways to describe that. Um, because, you know, like you say, when you write too, it's just like you sort of realize through this relationship with Vince and all that you've learned about, you know, the people in prison and the judicial system is it's never it, a lot of the time it isn't just one thing. Right. So it's just like understanding humanity on a deeper level where it's it's just kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, yes, this thing happened with Vince. However, there's a lot of layers to that. And I think that's something that we all can kind of relate to. And probably you do see quite frequently in your practice. For sure. Yeah, that I really resonate with that. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, too, was in terms of how this is impacted, not just how you, you work with your patients, but um, I know you teach medical students, too. Um, and so if you if you had maybe a lesson or a takeaway for people who are early in their medical careers, whether it's like med students or residents, from from this whole experience that you've had, is there something that you would share with them? So so you guys are asking great questions. <laughs> that, that is one, like part of the experience for me in, in terms of committing, you know, a decade to to the other Dr. Gilmer to events, um, you know, I, I've wanted it. I didn't realize that at first that it would be such a, a real teachable moment that, that might inspire people. That wasn't my intention at all. But, but now I'm realizing that, that the importance of, of hearing, you know, good, good stories, stories that, you know, inspire people to, to reach further for medical students who are trying to figure out their, their lives and, sort out their, you know, where they, their trajectory. Um, you know, I think, I think the story offers a lot to them in terms of the basics, like the fundamental elements of why people go into medicine. And, you know, there's so much seduction in medicine towards whether it be specialty medicine or there's, there's a lot of tension in terms of, of how medical students sort out their, their professional lives. And, and I think, being a part of a story like this for them. I mean, there, there've been many medical students who kind of 
you know, been intertwined with this story. And I think it's helpful for them to see like what, what we do on a, on a fundamental level in terms of advocacy and medicine and, you know, just the, the, the simplistic understanding of, of, you know, that medicine is, it's not just a profession. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a calling and that we, we have to embed purpose um, during our, our trajectory to, to become like doctors that, that we want to be. And that it's yeah. accessible too. Like, I think that's the other big lesson that, you know, you have to remain curious, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're a student for life. Like if you lose your curiosity, you lose everything. Um, and that, that, that curiosity is like the key towards arriving at a place that where you can be transformed. Uh, I love that. That's really neat. Yeah, that kind wonderful. of leads into another question that we have too, just how the reception has been to the book from, you know, maybe your students or your community and your family and all of that kind of stuff. How has that been for you? Oh, it's been so fun. <laughs> Good. And, you know, that's been a, just a beautiful part of writing the book that I never knew that this would be a sequelae of, of like writing a book, but getting to hear feedback from people and, and learning from, from feedback um, and seeing how people respond and how, how it affects uh, or inspires them to, you know, to, to change their lives. Like that's been so beautiful. Yeah. Just greatly appreciated being challenged by, by readers, being challenged by, by the concepts that, that I felt were really important. And, you know, seeing people grow into, um, you know, the, their own idealism about, wow, right. this, is, this is just wrong what we're doing. Yeah. Recognizing that for the first time, and then wanting to do something about it. So it's that that's been such a sweet aspect of, of you know, being part of a story and, and telling a story through a book. Right, building community in that way too, just kind of like all coming together, you know, for a cause like this as well, just inspiring that mm-hmm. change. I, I, that's amazing. That's what it takes, right? To, to make it to make change, like it, it takes. No, what, it takes thousands of people like to to make change. But but I you know I think one thing that writing and doctoring have in common is is storytelling. That's true. And, and listening. That's true. And, and weaving weaving a story to a patient, whether that be to try to educate them or to coalesce a group of people who who want to do better. You know, story touches people deeply. Much more so yeah, than lectures or, <laughs> or office visits, you know, like it's, yeah, there, there's magic in, in storytelling. Uh, that's a great ne- point. Neurobiologic yeah. magic. I yeah. Think. yeah, yeah. Kind of like looking at each person as having mm-hmm. their own story and each patient has their story. Like with Vince, you know, he has such a complex story that mm-hmm. if somebody spent, you know, 15 minutes with him in an office, they would barely scratch the mm-hmm. surface. Um, so I, I can see how that's a wonderful example for for patients and doctors of how, you know, you have to really get to know the person in order to deliver care. Um, and there's just always more to people than uh, there might seem on the surface. Oh my gosh. It's so critical. Like oftentimes we don't learn, we don't, we don't understand a person until we've got, we've taken care of them for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Like the key that unlocks sort of their pathology takes years, decades even to, to surface. Yeah. Which was also true with, with Vince Gilmer. Like his, his story just kept unfolding. Right. Like the, mm-hmm. the complexity of, of, of his pathology, like the complexity of, of the intergenerational history that, that really conspired against him. Like 
you know, it, it took a long time to uncover all those things. And it's the, yeah. it's the same pursuit, you know, that we, I mean, the template that I sort of saw the story was, was through a, a medical one, you know, I, I kind of treated him as a, as a patient and the, the sort of process of discovery is, uh, yeah, is very similar to what we would do with, with any person in, in the office. That's probably something that he appreciated a lot too, though, you know, with his background and, you know, you can kind of feel through throughout the book, what kind of person and doctor he is, um, which is probably Mm -hmm. why you were able to connect so quickly, really, you know, it's like the jump into that relationship with him. It was very kind of just finding what's the right word, just like a a kindred spirit almost, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think that's really an interesting thing. I love that. Yeah. Um, and, and one other factor that we were interested in, in terms of the whole process of releasing this book, not just the, the reception from other people, but how has it been for you? Because, you know, you started out as a family medicine doctor. You probably were never planning on becoming a public figure of sorts where you have like a popular, you know, this American Life episode about you and the book and there's a movie in development. Um, and I know you talked in one point in the book about being interviewed on CNN and how that experience, um, you had sort of mixed feelings about how that went and this kind of out, outcome of it. Um, so how has this, this whole experience changed your thoughts about sort of harnessing media for advocacy and, and that part of the experience? Is that something that you feel like you've been able to embrace or, you know, how do you feel about that, that element of it? I mean, I've learned that, that media is, is like essential in this contemporary world that where we live, like it's essential for advocacy. Like you, <laughs> if you can't negotiate that realm, it's it's just hard to get anything done. You know, I, I learned all these little lessons along a very long path, but after doing the This American Life piece, I, I learned that, wow, they, it's, it's such an amazing mechanism to use like radio. I didn't, had never written a book before, so I hadn't, had never imagined like that. Um, but I, I think I've, the most important message for me was that learning the the power of like of the word, whether that be spoken word or written word or or whatever word, that if you really believe in something, and and put it out there, and stand firmly behind it, that you know people people start to believe, like they start to um, to learn from from the the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vince's word was that this is you know mass incarceration of the mental ill is completely inhuman you know so yeah media is so important to telling stories and and i think you know one of the the biggest barriers for most people is that they believe that they'll never have that opportunity to do it or that they'll, they'll never be able to to tell a story that could be moving to people and i think that's one thing that i'd like to offer up to folks is that yes you know if, if i could could tell a story um that anybody can tell a story or that if I could <laughs> pursue advocacy, like anybody can pursue advocacy. So that, that's sort of the message I, I think that I would love people to hear is that, um, you know, we can all do this together, but it, it, it takes a lot of, you know, risk taking behavior. And I think that's been a, you know, <laughs> I've never been afraid to like take on challenges and that was enabled me to some degree to, to kind of take extra risk. But we can, we all have to tell our stories and harnessing the power of media um, can be very negative in some ways. Like the, the CNN experience was not a, a positive experience. It didn't move the needle. They weren't particularly interested in advocacy, mm-hmm. but 
so you know being selective obviously like the great work that you all do and telling stories and highlighting stories is can go a long way <laughs> yeah, oh. been, well thank yeah. you for oh. saying that <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're right. I mean, media, it's it's changed so much, too, especially over the course of the last several years with, you know, current events that are happening and everything. And I think there's a lot that needs to be changed in a lot of different ways. So it's it's really great that you're kind of um, kind of looking to utilize like the media for utilize it for good reason and kind of move trying to move that needle like Mm -hmm. that. Um, so for Vince, just kind of looking back at your conversations with Vince, what was kind of the hardest part about putting the book together and revisiting some of those more difficult conversation pieces and topics with him, like when you're visiting him in prison? Yeah, I think, well, every, every time I see him, it's like, it's hard, like it's challenging. Like it's, um, after you cross a certain threshold where you realize justice is, has not been served. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's painful. It's, it's painful to not be able to help your, your patient. Like I, I mean, I thought of him more, more than a patient. Like mm-hmm. he, he became and, and is a dear friend. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's like, imagine like seeing a patient recognizing that they need a life threatening, um, a life, life saving surgery and that they can't get it like mm-hmm. and that your inability to get them that surgery could cost them their life like that's sort of the the painful relationship that we have like it's it's beautiful and that it you know i've gotten to know him as a person and feel like i'm contributing to his life but it's been so painful to for someone who's used to getting stuff done and you know we don't if you know your patient has cancer you don't wait 13 years or or you don't wait 10 years before Mm -hmm. you start chemotherapy like you do it immediately right and not being able to get him the care that that he's needed um and then writing about it you know so like sitting around and like writing about his story Mm -hmm. meanwhile while he's wasting away emotionally and physically in prison like that that's been one of the most you know torturous experiences in my life how did you cope with that or how have you just especially with writing all of you know the the process of writing all of this stuff down how do you deal with that mentally well i mean it it inspired me to write faster <laughs> let's <laughs> get this over I mean, with what, well no i mean it yeah like i i felt this immense pressure and compulsion to write write the book as, as fast as I could mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. you know, I w- was writing the book for the governor of Virginia. That was the, that was the target audience. You know, he, he was the, he was the number one audience, this one person. And so, um, I mean, I, I wrote the book for other people too. Like I wrote it for events. I wrote it for students. I wrote it for advocates. I wrote it for, um, lots of different people, but but seeing the trauma that he experienced every day in prison, like was, you know, motivated me to get up every morning at 5 a.m. to write and to, um, to work on the weekend, like to, to work every moment that I could find free to, to do it. Of course, I was working full time throughout this process. So it was, it required that, <laughs> it required that level of motivation, like to, yeah. to get it done. I mean, I mean, you all know how tough it is to write a book. It's, it takes a lot of discipline mm-hmm. and, um, and, and frankly, it took a lot of anger and emotional turmoil, like to, to write this book. I mean, I think that passion and that urgency comes through on the page. You know, a lot of times you read a book and even if it's a great book, it's just sort of like, okay, that was, 
that was a good experience and then you move on. But even for me in reading this, you really feel like you want to do something, you know, there's just so much injustice that's portrayed in the situation that I think it's hopefully going to move the needle for a lot of people to want to do whatever they can to, to help not just Vince, but the more systemic issues as well. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I really, I wanted, you know, I wanted to write the book like plainly, you know, as if it was like spoken, like spoken words and so that people mm-hmm. can have, you know, react to it in, in a way that was more natural, I suppose. It, I wanted people to be angry, you know, and I wanted yeah. them to you know, ex- experience the same emotions that, that I was. It's very personal the way it reads, for sure. I mean, it's definitely a different type of book, I think, um, because as you're reading it, it feels almost like you're reading like... I don't know, like a mixture between like a novel or a diary entry, stuff like that. You can definitely feel how frustrated you are. Um, And it does make Mm -hmm. you want to do something. It's super infuriating. Like in multiple different times, you're just like, how is this even happening? (laughs) You know, in America, I know it's just crazy. Yeah, that was like one thing Sarah and I talked about multiple times. We're just like, can you believe this is a true story? Or like, it's just it's just nuts. And I have talked to like my family about it and friends. And, you know, my dad, uh, actually, this morning, he knew we were talking to you today. And he was like, that is an unreal story. I was like, Dad, (laughs) that's probably the best way to put it though because it is and I think you did a great job you know just with the writing of all of this and just kind of making it to a point where you really I think anyone that reads it is going to get to the end of it and just say like I want to know more about what's going on like this is something that we have Mm -hmm. to change yay (laughs) (laughs) it's true There, there were another 200 pages that didn't make it. I was, yeah, we were actually going to ask about the research process. So you, you obviously learned mm-hmm. so much about criminal justice system and how it kind of, in the prison system and how it crosses paths with the medical system. And I'm sure that you, I'm sure there is a bunch of, you know, stuff that didn't make it into the book. What was that research process like for you? Yeah, well, the research, I mean, the research was exciting because it, you know, I think it, um, the intentional part of writing the book, the intentional part of getting to know like Huntington's experts and, and other people was, was a great gift, like to, to learn, like to continuously learn more. And so it was like a passport to, to get to know a lot of different people that I never would have experienced otherwise. Um, yeah, but you know, I, I don't think of the book as like a, a research project per se. It was like a living, mm-hmm. a living project. Mm-hmm. And so all the research just happened organically and naturally throughout the the decade of of living through the different characters that that became you know very close to me and um, unfortunately I never got to meet the the governor but um, yeah yeah it was an amazing learning experience from people like Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative people in in Virginia other politicians and senators who were also like interested in, in this mission of, um, you know, limiting mass incarceration and, and healing people rather than punishing politicians in North Carolina. I mean, there, there are just so many people who also want to have this voice. And so, um, you know, I think trying to coalesce those, those voices was, well, it was a big learning opportunity, but also really important. I think I, I see that as a, a mission for the book. I had a chance to speak to the General Assembly to, um, about a, six weeks ago, 
and they they've been so gracious about wanting to learn from the the book too and um and to use it to to leverage what they're doing the mental health caucus to um to create more resources for the mentally ill in north carolina so th awesome. those are the kind of things that that i'm really excited about and and you know the research has has helped to get to know some of those people that are are now leveraging this issue for you know for justice well, in that, that spirit of kind of sharing information, um, I know you had to kind of learn some about the criminal justice system in this process, but can you also share with us a little bit about Huntington's? Hannah and I were talking before about how both of us, we didn't really know much about the disease before reading this. It's, it's pretty rare. Can you just share a little bit with our, our listeners about what Huntington's is and why it's so difficult to diagnose? Sure. So this is a little spoiler alert if you haven't read the book, but Huntington's <laughs> is, a, is a disease that's it's both neurologic and psychiatric. So it's a, it's a very interesting genetic disease that normally happens. You start to see its manifestations in the fourth decade of life. So, so Vince, when he was around 40, 35 or 40 started having symptoms. The early phase of the disease is, is commonly like psychiatric. So he had depression, anxiety, ultimately delusions the later part of the disease as it marches on becomes more neurologic so you have um you you're unable to walk eventually swallowing you have these these weird um ballismic sort of uncontrolled neurologic gestures that happen um so it's it's a complex disease that's that's mediated by one one genetic defect and if you if one of your parents has it then you have a 50 50 chance of getting wow. it. So Vince's father had Huntington's disease. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up being a coin toss. And to date, there's, there's no great treatment for it. Um, but it's, it's kind of a devastating disease, similar to other ones that have some commonalities like Parkinson's disease, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, there are a host of other movement disorders that can mimic symptoms like of Huntington's, but it's it's insidious in that it, it starts when you're usually after you've procreated. And so that enables the genes to be passed down. Woody Guthrie is the most famous person who had Huntington's disease and he was eventually hospitalized for it and, you know, died in, in the, a mental hospital um, after having visitors like Bob Dylan come see him and, and others. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting uh, genetic inherited disease that that all medical students learn about, but it's hard to it's hard to recognize the symptoms sometimes if you've never seen it before. So Vince was my first, yeah. <laughs> my yeah. first witness into the Huntington's, and now I've become deeply committed to it. Mm. A lot of Huntington's yeah. patients end up on the street, um, homeless, with a drug addiction, and this was the story of Vince's father who never had it diagnosed mm. and who passed it to him. Yeah, it's it's really striking in reading about Vince's experience how, you know, like you're saying, it's a coin toss. You know, it's just this one little genetic thing and it can determine so much of your life. Um, and the idea of fallibility is one that is a, a strong theme in the book that we, I think most of us tend to go through life thinking that we're in control of our, our minds and our bodies and our brains. And, you know, we're, we're all a lot more vulnerable and fallible than we think. Um, and I think taking that perspective gives you some compassion for other people. And there was, there was a line that we pulled out that I think both of us found striking. Um, 
It's what makes us human, recognizing that we are all fallible and that we share a common purpose to live. Um, so can you talk about that concept a little bit, just kind of how we as a society can open our minds to that idea that we're all individually fallible and um, there are more factors that maybe play into our decisions than what we sometimes realize? That's a, Thank you for asking that question. This, this is one that's supremely important and I think when, maybe the most important concept in the book ultimately to take away this notion that homo sapiens, humans, um, we all have evolved with this, this brain that we can become pathologic. We see it all the time in, in, in the hospital and in their clinics. And, and, you know, if you dig deeper to recognize that, that each of us, that you can become cognitively fallible as, as we all know can happen, whether that be emotionally or, you know, more profoundly with, with deeper psychiatric illness, if you start to, to recognize like and have a greater awareness that, that all of us can become pathologic, um, just as we can become pathologic physically, you know, we don't, I think it's interesting that we think of mental illness very differently than like cardiac illness or pulmonary embolus illness. And, you know, we have to ask ourselves why, like, why do we, why is mental illness so different? Why, why do we distance ourselves from mental illness in a way that really prevents us from having that awareness? But if I think of understanding that cognitive fallibility, if you can resonate with that, then you can start to appreciate and understand why it's so, why mass incarceration is so devastating and in how we can have become more compassionate you know, towards our, our fellow humans. Um, it's, it's an essential part of our survival as a species, honestly. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds a little dramatic, but if, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you've read the book it's Sapiens, true. which is a fantastic yes. book, so good. Story of Mankind, you'll see it. You know, if you, if you read um, anything about psychiatry, you'll, you'll start to understand that our awareness is, is oftentimes very limited. And um, the battle that's being waged between your right and your left hemisphere often enables us, you know, on a, you know, on a, on a quotidian sort of level to, to have little, little many experiences with, with mental illness, or at least many experiences of being cognitively like vulnerable or fallible. And so, yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I, if we can't recognize that we share that in common, you know, as humans, then we're, it's going to be tough to get to the next level of understanding, which is um, we can't just punish these people. Like mm-hmm. we are all there. We don't, right. we don't punish people for having a heart attack. We don't, you know, we treat them with a, a catheterization. We don't punish people if they have renal failure. We, we give them dialysis. So the same respect to the brain, which is the most complicated organ in the whole body. Like, yeah. <laughs> how can we imagine that the brain doesn't go awry at times? Yeah. You know, if we think about it differently, I think that will take us to a, a much greater awareness that's important. That's a really interesting way to look at it. Why is it, do you think that people aren't able to look at it that way? Is it just, I mean, to you, like, what do you think that reason is? I think because we, we don't want mm-hmm. to be that person. Like we don't want to recognize that that we're cognitively fallible. We don't want to recognize that we might not have free will. You know, those concepts are really scary. And, you know, the design of the brain is fascinating. Like when you think about, you know, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere, 
the, the left hemisphere is sort of the master and, and the right hemisphere is sort of the emissary. And, and when you think about those concepts, like the brain is sort of weaving um, this, you know, the, the, it's, it's weaving a picture of who we are all the time and it protects us. And so certain parts of the brain like protect the, our personal understanding of who we are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it very intentionally tries to project ourselves as not being fallible or vulnerable. A lot of, of mental, you know, psych, psychiatric pathology comes from that battle. And so, yeah, it's a very deeply embedded evolutionary part of our brain to, to not want to recognize that fallibility. Yeah, the, the level of protection that the brain kind of has, it, it's a really, it's almost terrifying sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Have you read Bo- well, it's, The Body <laughs> Keeps the Score? That's what I'm thinking about right now, that book, where you're just yeah, like... Yeah, I, I watched my wife read that book, and I, I haven't read it, but I read Oh, well, you would love it, I think. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it is scary, you know. It, it protect, Your brain protects you from so much, and your body remembers things that you might not... Um, be able to remember and it really does tie into the whole idea that we were talking about earlier where it's just there is never really one cause for something especially when you look at someone with a history like Vince's or anyone with mental illness and that sort of thing it's never it's never just one thing and sometimes you don't have control over yourself and I think you're right just as a cult, as a society and um, humanity you know we just we don't want to admit that because control people like <laughs> I think yeah. that's in, in Vince's brain like his his neurologic demise is I think really illustrates on many different levels how and where the brain can can be fallible like he was fallible because he he had endured like sexual abuse from his father for most of his life. He was fallible because he had a traumatic brain injury that, that damaged, you know, cells in his brain. <laughs> he was fallible because he was coming off of an SSRI an antidepressant medication where all people, when they come off, feel terrible. He was fallible because he had major depression and generalized anxiety disorder. He was fallible because he had PTSD as a result of so many of these things. And then he was fallible because he had evolving Huntington's. So all those things, (coughs) excuse me, together really contributed to this massive fallibility. Any one of those for either of us could have made us very vulnerable. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that was one of the most fascinating things to me about the book was just looking at kind of the factors behind why we do what we do. And that's always an interesting question, but especially when you look at it in the light of the the justice system, you know, it's so weighted in terms of, you know, when do we hold people responsible for their actions and that sort of thing. So this book is just a really fascinating exploration of that, I think. and one of the, the big purposes that we saw coming out of this book was, as we talked about, like to inspire change in readers and to motivate people to action um, in the criminal justice system and medicine and how we care for patients and prisons. Um, for you personally, what would you say is the biggest change that you see in yourself after going through all of this and forming that bond with Vince and going on this quest for justice? I mean, the biggest change for me is that I believe, I've learned to, to believe that, that I can make a difference. You know, I think most of us believe that we are sort of in the middle of the bell curve, which is totally fine. You know, there are, are a few people who are in the fifth percentile, like the, the people, you know, who have shattered our sense of, of what justice is. And, um, you know, people like Brian Stevenson is that in that category. 
um, you know, people like Jimmy Carter, who's who's like eradicated polio in his lifetime, almost. Um, Barack Obama. I mean, there's so many people that live in that sort of bell curve of amazingness. But but I don't put myself in that. I put myself right in the in the middle of the bell curve. And so, you know, learning that like average people can make a difference um, that that's been really empowering like to me um, to take that concept and to to learn how to how to push something for advocacy and and how to um, to be committed to something over a long period of time so that's been my my biggest learning experience is the exposure to to what social justice can mean and and practicing how how to do it I'm still still learning how to do it like it the learning curve is is so steep and so long too but uh, writing the book has taught me a lot about what this this path towards social justice means and um yeah I'm, we're all trying to figure it out together right now but it but everybody doesn't matter where you on the curve everybody can can pursue justice and if it means just one person that's equally as important as a thousand people you know saving one person's life is is as important as saving a thousand people's lives it's so motivational yeah. I love that. <laughs> um well one other question or one other kind of idea that stuck out from the book was the phrase healing crime um that's an idea that, that comes up in a number of points um and just the idea of healing in general for for Vince and his patients, his friends and family, um, anyone who struggles with mental illness or neurological disorders. Um, can you talk with us a little bit more about that, that phrase healing crime and kind of what that idea means to you? Yeah. A lot of people have, have felt that putting those two words together is, is kind of awkward and maybe inappropriate that how, how can we heal crime? Like that's not a, that's not possible. Um, but you know, I, I took the approach of looking at crime like through a through a clinical lens and you know healing crime means you know puts itself in juxtaposition with with punishing crime which is what we know how to do like that's what mm-hmm. that's what prisons do that's what our justice system is intended to do that's what racism racism has has like bred in us to continue doing over the years you know um putting people in prison is many people believe is an extension of, you know, of racism and healing crime feels very different. Like healing, healing crime re is a reframe to me that, you know, you have to look at, at people's history first. Like you have to look at not just what they did, but what, what got them there. You have to, you have to look at their family tree. You have to look at their social history and their medical history and their personal history um, and think far upstream rather than just downstream you know punishment is simply pushing downstream and um, healing crime means looking much further upstream you know looking at kindergarten students looking at what contributes to making people's minds like fallible um, and so yeah I, I I love the concept of that we we can do this like we can actually heal crime but but it, it's in stark contrast to to this paradigm of punishment that we've just dug ourselves into. And there are lots of countries that like have, have learned this lesson, like they've practiced it. You know, countries like in Scandinavia where they take their most hardened criminals and they, and they, they return to them like some level of dignity and therapy and healing. 
and their recidivism rates are half of what ours are. Mm -hmm. And so they, we know it's possible. Like we've, we've had experiments in our system in America, you know, for, for 40 years, we've, we've, there've been moments of hope where, where people have tried to heal crime, but you know, the other part of healing crime is that it, it really requires a village. Like it requires law enforcement, medicine, the judicial system, you know, it requires every level of, of, of our, you know, carceral system to reframe it in a way that, that medicalizes it in, in a way. And, and I don't know. And it, I, I think it just instills hope, like the phrase healing crime instills hope that, that we, we can do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we, mm-hmm. it's actually possible to do it instead of just thinking about punishment. Right. I think, um, I, I love that you just brought up the term hope because I think even though the story, or, you know, your experience, the story itself is very, um, frustrating and emotional. It's also hopeful. I think like when you get to the end of the book, you do, it is, it's nice to know. And I like that that chapter is kind of towards the end as well, where you're just, it's, it's, it lifts you up a little bit and you're like, okay, but there's things that we can do here to change all of this. Mm-hmm. And it is a story of hope too, I think, you know? Yeah. No, Vince, Vince's story is, it is a story. It's a traumatic story of hope. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I want to say too, that, you know, trying to heal crime doesn't mean that we're removing people from being responsible. Right. It, mm-hmm. it, it means that we're making them more responsible mm-hmm. by giving them a goal. Like why not have a goal to get, to get someone back into a job, like to have them work again. Why, why can't that be our goal rather than like life in prison? Or to get them to a to a hospital where, where they can actually receive treatment. Mm-hmm. You know, spending if Vince had had spent life in a hospital, that that would have been a punishment too. Like he he lost everything in his life. He lost his job. He lost his family. He lost his mind. And um, you know, people think sometimes that wow, if we just send someone to a mental hospital, that's not enough punishment. But um, yeah, try spending life in a mental hospital. That's that is something that most people would not choose on on their own so i see healing crime is not you know it doesn't it it's it doesn't um it contributes to making people more responsible mm-hmm. if that makes sense to you yeah i think that's that's so powerful and so true yeah, I just kind of wanted to know, you know, what, what did you have any writing experience prior to writing this book? And I know for, for both of us, for Sarah and I, it's like, I realized like my husband's always writing um, medical journal things. <laughs> so is that kind of what <laughs> your writing was prior to writing this? Or have you dabbled in creative writing or memoir writing or anything like that in the past? This was a one trial experience. <laughs> And trial by fire. <laughs> no, but the, the writing, you know, this is what I, I, I love to talk about writing now because I, I've learned to love it so much. Like it's been, it's been a real joy, like to tap in to the right side of, of my brain because it, medicine is a, is a profession where we often like distance ourselves from mm-hmm. it, from the creative process. And, and medicine is, is a very creative process, but I, I think contemporary medicine today really put some barriers between our left and right hemisphere and the right being the more creative um, structure. And so, yeah, I learned to just uh, to revel in, in the process of writing. Like it became such a great outlet for me so that the process itself was 
was really inspirational, like to, to dig in deep and to, to practice. Like I, I practiced for a while, like before, before I really sat down with a, you know, with some professionals to guide me, I practiced in a dark room for, for a few years. And that was, you know, that was hard, like not getting feedback and, um, not really knowing what I was doing. So yeah, writing is therapy. Yeah. Like if you if you've never done it before, mm-hmm. or if you've done it before, I think you you know that like writing is therapy, and it, it was certainly a way for me to dig deeper into myself. Yeah, we we also were just curious about kind of your actual process and time management yeah. in writing this. Um, I know I think you mentioned earlier that no no it's fine. <laughs> if you need to take a minute, just let us know. We can always um, we can always pause for a second. I know you're you're graciously talking to us while you're a little under the weather and at um, the hospital <laughs> or at your practice yeah <laughs> but yeah that's actually kind of what we wanted to ask about was like you're you're practicing medicine you're teaching you've got a family to raise like how I mean writers always complain about not having time to write so how did you find the time to actually work on this I know you mentioned that you would get up early is that kind of um, how you would approach the writing process from like 5 a.m to 7 a.m mm-hmm. wow wow <laughs> Are you a coffee drinker? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I figured maybe that would be the case. (laughs) But I I would say that's not the ideal way to write a book. The ideal way to write a book is is to create space so that your mind, you know, it takes time for your mind to get into a creative space. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have that opportunity to to have those moments where where I could just go spend – a month and and really you know dig in and absorb you know absorb things that i didn't know were going on i i'm really jealous of those people that can like go to hawaii and and, and sit and write for a month but at that the same nice. time you know the, the the book for me was is such a real um testimony to to life and so i wrote it during those real moments of of life like trying to balance kids soccer games and being on call all night and you know it just became part of the routine and so that that was nice and it it was also like just a a nice retreat every day to to go into a room and sort of disappear and and just shut everything out you know it's kind of like playing music like when you play music life just disappears and it's true and you reappear and you know with your own mind and that was that was a really beautiful experience to have that that sort of excuse like to to disappear for a couple right. hours every day and try to fumble through through writing. Do you think you'll write another book? Well, I, I wrote this book because the story, like the story begged me to write mm-hmm. this this book. Like I I wouldn't have had the audacity to write a book. It was, <laughs> it, was it was you know the freedom like the freedom of trying to get Vince out of prison. But his story is, is so unique, and I felt that it was a story that really had to be told, and so that that's why I wrote it. If if ever there's a story, another story, I would love to have the opportunity to write a book. But I, I think some people may only have a one one story in their lifetime to tell, and this this was mine. Well, I think his story is still it's a continuation, so you never know. There might be something mm-hmm. else that kind of comes and screams at you to put it on the page. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, and we actually were wondering too, um, from the the time that the book 
ends until now, if there are any updates on Vince that you can share with us. I know you, you were mentioning um, before we started recording that there's a, a GoFundMe if you want to share that with the listeners and anything else you can tell us maybe, maybe about what's going on with this case right now. The update is that um, when the book was published, the governor had not made a decision for clemency. So I gave pre-release copies to the governor and the cabinet, everyone in his cabinet. And I, I think to some degree that may have helped him come to the realization that this was a, a, a very important issue. And so um, in January, the, on the governor's last day, he, in his last hours, he granted Vince clemency, that the clemency that we had been asking for, which was simply to move him to a hospital where he could receive care for the first time. And that was in January. And, and now we're almost September and he's still in prison um, because the, the system, the carceral system in Virginia has not enabled us to get him to a hospital. They've, they've not enabled us to get him to a public hospital in Virginia, which takes efforts on their part, which they have not done. And so, so now we have Vince is likely the only free man living in prison in America right now. Most people, when they, they're given clemency, they leave the next day. Vince has, has spent an extra eight months in prison, oftentimes in solitary confinement where he is today. Mm. And so we've been ch- desperately trying to find a private hospital outside of Virginia that would take him. That costs $25,000 a month for most places. And it's, you know, he's a high risk patient. So it's hard, really hard to find a private setting outside of, you know, the, the public mental hospitals that each state supports. That's where most of these type of patients go. And so it's without the help of, of Virginia, without, without the help of their advocacy, it's been a tremendous uphill battle that's led to us launching a GoFundMe campaign just two weeks ago to try to raise $100,000 to help pay for a private place. So we're, we're making grounds now. I was just on a phone call um, just a few minutes ago with a, a guy in New York who helps run a hospital called Terrence Cardinal Cook, which is one of the foremost like Huntington's hospitals in the country. And they, they would like to, to take vents. So we're, we're, we're moving in a positive direction, but, but you can sort of see the interplay of like, you know, this is a political issue. It's, it's a, you know, it's a public issue. And the larger public issue is that there just aren't enough public hospitals for, for our patients. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In fact, there are 10 times more people with mental illness who are incarcerated than in mental hospitals because we don't have enough beds for people. Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of this story as well, that that we we can do better, that we can treat our mentally ill people better with, with greater resources. If we had, had greater resources, Vince would probably, he would have been out by now, but... Right. Uh, but unfortunately, he's he's still in prison. Well, to our listeners, we're going to um, grab the GoFundMe information and make sure to share that with you guys. And thank you for sharing that with us, too. And kind of in closing thoughts with all of this, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to even, <laughs> I don't want to wrap up at all, really. Um, but just mm-hmm. towards the end of the books, me and Sarah were kind of talking about how powerful it was that you included what Vince wanted to share wanted you to share with the book. And so though he can't be with us today, we kind of wanted to share the points that he wanted to make sure were highlighted, which are prison is torture. Sexual abuse changes you forever. We are all at the mercy of our brains and listening is healing. Um, Super powerful from Vince. And honestly, like I have like 
a tear in my eye <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so grateful for you to, to have put this book together and to Vince, really. I mean, what a, what a powerful mm-hmm. human being, I'm sure. Um, you feel that on a daily basis. And have, have you been able to see him recently? So during COVID, all, our, all incarcerated people have not been able right. to be visited. So since 2019, I have not seen him. Um, all, most prisons have been closed for COVID, so they haven't had any visitors. But um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like you mentioned that this was a story of hope too. And, and Vince wants to be mm-hmm. hope for other people too. He, mm-hmm. He's an incredible like, survivor. And, and he, wants, he wants to continue teaching people. He would love for this story, his story, to be a teachable moment and and really looks forward to getting out and being able to you know to help students learn about Huntington's and to help talk about the carceral system and yeah even despite all of his his deep you know trauma and worsening disease he 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 still lives like mm-hmm. to help other people which is a testament to his incredible um, dedication to to others which is why he went into medicine mm-hmm. yeah yeah, you, you really see that from your descriptions of him when he was practicing in terms of how he cared for his patients, that spirit of wanting to heal and wanting to connect with them on a human level and caring for them individually. And um, I think and hope that, you know, his whole experience with this and your partnering with him and your advocacy is going to help to continue that that cause yeah. um, through through his life now, too. So. Let us hope. <laughs> Good message. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Well, we really, really appreciate you being here, Dr. Gilmer, and sharing this amazing book. Um, We can't wait to share it with our listeners and just keep keep fighting the good fight. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And I really appreciate it. Thank you for all your great work. And um, gosh, it's amazing. I can't wait to listen to some of your other podcasts. Looks like y'all are are doing some amazing, amazing things in Charlotte. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, wrapping up here with our takeaways, and then what's coming uh, in the next episode. Uh, All right, takeaways. Hannah. um, (laughs) I feel like this is a really good episode. This is a lot of fun, too. I loved, um, you know, like I said earlier, as more of a fan of poetry as I've gotten older, I feel like it was really cool for me to kind of hear from Ken. He had a great post. I loved just sort of like the metaphor that he used for camping. And that was just sort of a nice intro to the rest of the episode. Um, and hearing Sarah's poetry was just so cool. I love that so much. And um, feeling just, I feel like this was almost like a more emotional episode just with all of that, just feeling connected to each other and thinking about how how cool it is with writing and the beauty of storytelling and how it connects people just through emotions. Like you sort of see yourself in different stories and poems and things like that. And so I think, I don't know how much of a takeaway necessarily that is, but just feeling like that was a really powerful segment. So I love that. Um, And also procrastination, you know, I think something I thought of a lot during that whole segment was just how maybe another conversation should be about imposter syndrome (laughs) and how it's the evil twin. It's like the twin of procrastination (laughs) Mm -hmm. a little bit where you're just like, should I even be doing this at all? You know, like, am I even qualified to be writing or, you know, speaking at an event or whatever it might be um it's it's kind of something that i thought about a lot and i think it's really 
I guess another thing that connects all of us too is just that shared experience of um, like not really feeling like doing something at a certain time and just walking out of the room or Mm -hmm. doing another task or something like that. And that it's okay to do that sometimes because maybe it's just your brain telling you like, just take a break. And I actually read an interview. Gosh, was it with, I don't know. I feel like I'm always quoting Liz Gilbert or somebody like that. It was someone along those lines who was saying like, if you feel, when I feel overwhelmed, I stop. (laughs) Like I don't, I just take a break (laughs) for a second and give myself that space. So I think those are all kind of highlights for me today. That's great. Sarah. Yeah, those are some great points. Um, and the imposter syndrome thing is a great idea, too. I've been thinking about maybe writing a blog yeah. post about that at some point. So maybe we could do a discussion on that in one of our episodes. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I got a lot out of this. Um, the poetry section was was great and makes me want to go and write a poem. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had less stuff to do today. So that Procrastinate. I and around and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steer yeah. into the trees and write poetry. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I have I have to do, you know, house cleaning and stuff instead. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there there was so much good information in that section about sort of what makes a poem work on a fundamental level and gives you that feeling of discovery as you're reading and that feeling of connecting to someone in a way that you can't necessarily put your finger on. Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. I think that we got some great tips about how to do that. And the procrastination thing, it was funny to me how relatable a lot of that was, even like across generations with Landis's yeah. grandfather. <laughs> like the more the stuff changes, the more <laughs> it stays the same. You know, I, th- I feel like it's sort of a universal writer experience. Um, so maybe I won't feel quite so guilty about mm-hmm. <laughs> procrastinating sometimes. Um, yeah, and we, we featured some great authors today too, some really interesting true stories and inspired by true events and, and true situations. So yeah, I, I got a lot out of this and I'm excited for Landis's, um, yeah. quote book too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm ready now for that. that. I've it, now that I've said it out loud, I've got to do it. I can't yeah. procrastinate. <laughs> well, I figure if I do, you know, four or five of them a day, that'll give me about three months. I'll, I'll have them all in a in a space that I can still start moving around and, and fix, you know, doing a little more you know, editing for brevity and clarity. I think that's what I'll call it, you mm-hmm. know, so, um, because when you talk on the podcast, there are a lot of likes and you knows and so's, and I'll make people sound a little bit better than that. We'll take out <laughs> some of those. You know, yeah. And we, we'll put the quotes in there. But yeah, as far as, um, for me today, my takeaways, I'm just, um, uh, and grateful. I, I think I speak on behalf of y'all too for the, for the listeners who engaged with us after we asked them to, for the authors who participated and brought their stories to us and, um, you know, felt comfortable with us uh, sharing those and talking about them, Charlotte providing their tip, uh, and um, for realizing that I can use everything I know about procrastination and apply it to my poetry writing, you know. There so, you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, yeah, I, I, eventually I might write a poem, but uh, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to feel guilty about procrastinating about it. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's been it's been great. I think we uh, we got a, a good thing here, and then all of a sudden, Hannah, you're going to be yeah. just stepping out for a little bit because you got this thing, this thing called no, baby we'll right. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're going to say to we're going to say to Hannah, you know, Hannah, pick up your iPhone when you're holding the baby and just click speak pipe and just start ra- yeah. rambling. And uh, when we'll, she we'll screams, put you on, you know? maybe so, that'll be a, a new sound yeah. to add to the uh, to your machine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when something's bad, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> exactly. Uh, guy, you're going to have a house full of, uh, I won't call it 
noise. Uh, well, you could sometimes you might, but you got two dogs and you have a baby. My husband's so uh, outnumbered too, because we have two girl dogs, me, I'm pretty loud (laughs) myself, and then the baby, baby girl, and she's probably gonna (laughs) be just like, (laughs) he's just like, wow. (laughs) It's it's yeah, it'll be good. It's good for my my first. He's have a daughter patient. first. That's a good, good <laughs> yeah. training. Uh, all right, yeah, so great stuff. So, um, Sarah, how about uh, sharing with us in your your voice uh, what's uh, coming next on the podcast? Sure. Um, so in our next episode, we are going to feature five authors, including New York Times bestselling novelist Therese Ann Fowler and her novel, It All Comes Down to This, where Therese invites the reader into the world of the strong-minded Geller sisters, the men they can't live with or without, the main summer house that holds the key to their happiness and the secrets that will change everything. Um, another best-selling author calls this a big-hearted novel about middle-aged women reckoning with their own heavy secrets and each other. I had a great time talking with Therese, so I'm looking forward to that. And he's also going to be speaking to the Charlotte Writers Club this fall, so um, I'm sure we'll be hearing about that on the podcast, too. Um, we're also going to feature Bobby Nash, who is an award-winning author who writes novels, comic books, short stories, screenplays, and more. He's a member of the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers and International Thriller Writers. On occasion, he appears in movies and TV shows, usually standing behind your favorite actor. <laughs> Occasionally, he puts pen to paper and doodles. And we will talk with him about the one-hour read, and in particular, his one-hour read titled The Lost Adventures of Captain Hawkland, Smuggler's Run. We're going to feature author Joel Shulkin, where we hear and break down his community blog post on what it means to write what you know, and also author Lee Zacharias, where we hear and dive into his her blog post titled Mountain Climbing and Alligator Wrestling, which is what authors do, apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're interested to hear about that. And last but not least, we're going to feature Ruth Little in her memoir, Book of Ruth, where she narrates 50 years of adventures from preservation activist in the 1970s to consultant, author, and artist in the 2010s, what one reviewer calls rigorous, observant, colorful, and brave. And, of course, we're going to have our uh, Charlotte uh, Lit 2-Minute Tip. We're going to have uh, our book recommendations uh, about what we are reading, uh, not necessarily what we've finished by then, but uh, we'll also have Mark West, Story Charlotte Blog, and uh, Lisa Tesler from S Novel Books contributing and we hope uh, we'll have some listener uh, feedback. Go to our website, uh, the contact page. Uh, send us an email or speak pipe. Tell us uh, what's on your mind. Give us a book recommendation. Uh, you know, if you're an author, give us that 30-second uh, uh, elevator pitch. Uh, it's all good. Uh, so I guess uh, I will say we are signing off here from Charlotte Reader's Podcast.